you're listening to hear this idea. So you're about to listen to a bonus episode, meaning it's a bit of a departure from our normal programming. Today's guest is Damon Binder. Uh, He's a friend of ours who Luca and I met when we all worked together in Oxford. Currently, Damon is a research analyst at Open Philanthropy, where he focuses on potential risks from pandemics and biotechnology. But this episode isn't about those things. Uh, If you like, you can always take a look at our recent mini-series on biosecurity, which is the odd-numbered episodes 49 through 55 inclusive. What is this episode about? Well, um, Damon has this kind of uncanny quality of seeming to have read and thought about so many random topics that come up in conversation. So we figured it would be fun to do a big discursive episode where we just throw a million questions at Damon and see what happens. Uh, In particular, Luca began by chatting with Damon about topics in economic history, like uh, the causes of population growth and the Industrial Revolution. And after that section, I replaced Luca to talk about physics, because before he worked with us at FHI in Oxford, um, Damon completed a PhD in theoretical physics at Princeton University. And so we covered uh, history of fundamental physics, hopes for future breakthroughs, what we know about the long-run evolution of the universe, and digital minds. So yeah, I can pretty confidently say this was one of the widest ranging episodes yet, but I think the result is just really enjoyable and information dense. Okay, just a note that if you'd like to skip to sections which stand out, uh, then you can use the chapter markers. And without further ado, here's the episode. I'm Damon. I recently started work on the Open Philanthropy Long-Termist team. Uh, where I mostly do research for the biosecurity team. So our, our goal is to spend money to reduce the risk of biocatastrophe. And my job is to do research to work out how and where we should be prioritizing our efforts. Nice. And I should maybe clarify as well that we're probably not going to speak about anything to do with your uh, day-to-day work. Well, I mean, I've only recently started. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> um, but yeah, instead, I'm like really keen for us to dig into some of your like other interests and hobbies, and you seem to like have a lot. Uh, and in one particular uh, case, I want to talk a lot about this kind of like idea of like big history uh, and maybe like history more more broadly. So one motivating framing uh, I kind of have for this is that there's this like semi-famous chart within EA of this like Holden uh, on on Holden's uh, Cold Takes blog, which kind of shows you a line of GDP. But I'm sure you. Could, like plug in whatever else over like this really long time frame and you can see it kind of like hockey sticking up uh and then you know you can either imagine this like continues on it stagnates or we could, like come crashing back down but they're like basically takeaway is that like this can't go on and like something i'm like really keen to explore over this episode is to like see um what the like kind of historical background here is for yeah like how this hockey stick like happened in the first place at all so yeah, maybe I'll just like start off with this like really big question, which is like, how come this stuff happened in the first place? Um, so I guess the way I see human history, there's been steady progression in like how much we've been able to extract like resources from our environment, uh, how many people we've been able to support. Uh, and as our societies have become more complex and more sophisticated, as we've learned more about the world, we've been able to support just vastly more people for the same amount of manual effort. So. Uh, in hunter-gatherer times, so I mean, before 12,000 years ago, everyone lived as hunter-gatherers. Mm. We don't really have great population estimates, but it was probably on the scale of a few million people. Uh, now we've got a world population of almost 8 billion people. So there's been an 8,000-fold maybe, or maybe at least in a 1,000-fold, maybe maybe as much as like an 8,000-fold increase in, in population. 
Um, and this is really the story of how humans have been able to extract more resources from the same amount of land. I mean, the earth itself is the same size. So what's happened is we've been able to more intensively exploit um, our environment and our resources in order to get population growth. Now, if you look at what this, say, let's say there's a thousand uh, fold growth over the last 10,000 years. If you look at what population growth that actually means per year, it's very, very low. Now, the population growth of of humans over the last 50 years has actually been like a lot, lot faster. It's pretty easy to, a lot of developing countries have managed to have growth rates uh, over like three or 4%. Yeah. And I think at the moment, the world is growing roughly at 1%-ish per annum, although it's actually decreasing now as countries develop and become richer. Yeah, and this is in terms of population, right? In terms of population growth. Um, so basically, if you extrapolate out population growth uh, that we currently have, you'll end up just in a few hundred years with world populations that are hundreds of billions or trillions. And um, there are definite limits to how many people the world can support. Um, if you just had 1% growth per year, that basically means you get about a tripling every century. Um, that doesn't might not sound like much, but that means over the pace of a thousand years, uh, the world population will increase like 10 or 100,000 times. You have to do the basic like the math to yeah. get the exact number. But now you're looking at world population that is hundreds of trillions of people, um, which is starting to look like basically everyone standing shoulder to shoulder with everyone else. Obviously, that cannot go on. Yeah. But that's just extrapolating our, our current growth rates. I mean, um, this isn't like postulating radically accelerated growth. This is just showing you that the current growth rates cannot continue with like a society that looks anything like our own. Yeah, yeah. There seems to be possibly two different distinctions here. There's this one continuous um, story of population has been growing, our ability to make use of the same land or the same resources has been growing, and there's kind of this continuous uh, hockey stick up figure to, to where we are now, and things look like they've run pretty smooth. And there's, as you said, these like clear challenges in the future of how far out we can continue growing at this rate. But up until now, it's been like more smooth sailing. And then I think often, and you know, this is also, I think in part of if you were to think about kind of some economic model and like line of best fit or something, right? You get these kind of sm uh, smooth curves. But then there's also this like more historical story, which is maybe more step change or stepwise, where you would say, oh, things, you know, had some low equilibrium to begin with, and then you get your agricultural revolution, you're kind of like on the next step, uh, and then you get your industrial revolution, then you're on the next step. And the question now is whether we can make the next step again. So do you have any strong views on how much of this is maybe driven by the first narrative, which would come down to some basic fundamental principles or rules that you can kind of summarize a lot of the history by versus the more maybe inflection points, and there are these equilibriums that we kind of like jump between? Yeah, I think this is like a really important and tricky question. Um... So maybe to summarize the first view, basically the interesting thing is that population growth isn't, human population hasn't just been growing at a constant rate. Like the rate of human population growth is accelerated. Well, it was accelerating up to the 1950s. Um, after that point it's decreased and that's actually a bit unusual. But before that point, basically every century the population was growing faster than the previous century. Right, yeah. So we now have 8 billion people most of that growth has really been in the last couple hundred years. Uh, the world population in 1800s was only 1 billion. Mm. Um, the world population in about 1 AD was probably only a few hundred million. And so if you look at the growth rates for that first like 8,000 years of agricultural history, yeah. you have incredibly low growth rates by modern standards. Um, so there's this interesting question around 
how does this work? And a very simple mathematical model is, is that you imagine um, the technological progress allows humans to, to grow more. Um, and we should think of technological progress as being like a fairly large bucket, not just like you can build better tools or whatever, but maybe you have better uh, societal infrastructure. Uh, you have better know-how and plant crops. You might have better crops because breeding has improved them. Right. Um, and so what you get is this kind of hyper-exponential growth where because of the stock of knowledge and our ability to, to gain more resources from the land has increased, we actually grow super exponentially. Uh, and this seems to fit the, the historical record we see kind of reasonably. I mean, our historic data is kind of crappy. So uh, one should be too careful about finding like the perfect curve to fit the, yeah, the yeah. data. Um, there is a second view, which I think is pretty common. And it does seem fairly like, does seem to fit fairly well uh, if you like read like narrative histories or whatever, if you if you think like qualitatively about what life was like, and, and in this story, we imagine that before ten or twelve thousand years ago, everyone's a hunter gatherer, uh, so they have like one mode of lifestyle, which um, usually means moving fairly frequently, not having a permanent uh, home all of the year. There's not really specialization to any great degree, um, no agriculture, so people hunt and they gather food from their environment. Yeah, uh, and then around ten or twelve thousand years ago, people started domesticating crops, uh, they started uh, animal husbandry. And so you see with the development of an agricultural uh, mode of living, uh, yeah. and these agriculturalists have population densities that were 10 or 100 times larger than hunter-gatherers. And this led basically to a very differently structured society. Mm. Um, in particular, you could have specialization, you know, people there's a, there's a sufficiently large population density that people can really specialize in trades. Yeah, yeah. Um, you see specialization in terms of violence. You see, you know, for instance, uh, people whose main livelihoods are from extracting resources from others. This is also where you start seeing states often connected to the extraction right, of resources yeah. through violence, but may also be through like religious uh, roles or through other other means. Um, in a sense, what you what you see is what the requirements you need to build like a complex society uh, and complex civilizations didn't emerge immediately it, it took a very long time actually um but broadly this is what people mean by like an agricultural revolution mm. and the claim that you can that is i think essentially kind of made here is that once ag the full agricultural package was kind of developed of of animal husbandry of um plant cereal cultivation and mm the kind of basic state structures and basic specialized roles that existed, uh, the actual life of the average peasant or farmer or whatever through most of this 10,000 years actually didn't really change very much. Mm. Sure, like the, the empires and civilizations that existed may have gotten a lot larger in scale. You had more sophisticated trade networks. Right. Um, you have more, a richer culture, denser populations, and also a spread of agriculture to different parts of the world. But a farmer living 8,000 years ago, maybe their life expectancy, their life quality, their fundamental living the way they lived wouldn't have been that unrecognizable to a peasant 300 years ago, at least insofar as like there's huge cultural variation amongst peasants and things like this. Yeah. But the actual like temporal difference isn't as big. At least this is like one claim that you could make. And, and another claim I know that gets made by the likes of um, James Scott, who wrote Against the Grain and, and some other people as well, is that maybe life expectancy even went down with, um, you know, these early states. I mean, yeah, curious for your, for your takes and, and what the argument there is. Yeah, so the argument uh, is originally dates back to, to arguments coming from Malthus um, and I think revived in the last few decades in a more neo-Malthusian view of um, 
of pre-industrial societies, uh, the basic observation is that, uh, and this holds for humans and also non-human animals, but the observation is that populations will tend to grow uh, if there are the resources to feed people, animals, whatever. Uh, but since there's a limited number of resources, eventually populations are going to grow to the point where they stop growing because the death rate and the birth rate reach equilibrium. Right. Yeah. So there's kind of a maximum capacity um, that will be reached. Uh, and often this is imagined as like quite a terrible state of being like, you know, everyone is just barely at subsistence, although that's actually not necessarily true. Mm. Um, it's particularly within human societies where people can make conscious choices to limit population growth. Yeah. Um, but I think it tends to be the case the human populations do grow uh, until they kind of reach a point where growth ceases because there is no resources to produce new people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so if you take this view, then you realize that actually the amount, the actual quality of technology isn't that strongly correlated to the quality of people's lives individually. Mm. Having better technology means usually that you have more people, but you don't have better better quality lives. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you can contrast this so, so you have this notion of extensive growth, which would be uh, more people existing or people moving into new niches, and that's kind of the kind of that's the kind of growth that we saw for most of history, most of, mostly. Mm. So there are a lot more peasants in the year fifteen hundred, a lot more farmers, a lot more people in general in the year fifteen hundred than there were in the year eight thousand BC. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's not clear the quality of life for the average peasant in fifteen hundred was was better than the average peasant or farmer in eight thousand BC. Mm. Um, what is clear is that because of better technology, better crops, better social structures, uh, we could support a lot more people on the same land areas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's we could have imagined instead a world in which the farmers never produced more than enough children um, to to exactly reproduce. So population density stayed constant. Uh, and in this world, then all of this improved technology, improved uh, crops, improved know-how, improved social structures would have allowed them to get higher yields from their land, yeah. which then means they would have been better fed or maybe had resources to trade for luxury goods. Yeah, yeah. Um, in practice, this is not what happened. I mean, there's not really any way really to imagine that people could really agree to like not have kids and to do this kind of long-term, thousand-year-long planning. Yeah. There are plenty of examples, though, of people making short, like, shorter time frame decisions to limit fertility. Infanticide is obviously a very common practice in pre-industrial societies. Uh, as uh, people deciding to be celibate for whatever reason, so you think of monks in medieval Europe or in parts of um, China and Japan and so on, um, the more people you have who decide to be celibate, the lower population growth rates you'll have. And so that can actually improve living standards because those yeah. people are not producing new children. Yeah. Um, you also have... Uh, what is called positive checks, um, things like war and famine, disease that will kill people uh, at higher rates if the population is is high. And these stop the population from growing as well. Yeah. And so these two kind of forces of people choosing to limit their growth rate and an increased rate of famines and diseases and other things, making it like people die faster and earlier, yeah, yeah. Uh, cause populations to kind of reach an equilibrium. That equilibrium is not as dependent as you might have and immediately assume on like how the, the technology level of it. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the um, distinction right between um, how many aggregate like populations can be sustained versus what the actual average quality of life is, I think, is a really interesting distinction. It actually seems like in some way that the 
um, James Scott or other kind of adjacent arguments even go one step further where they say, well, if there is, if, if a lot of people are living subsistent lives or fundamentally, right, end up producing at kind of subsistent levels, and then you have on top of that uh, an extractive state that needs to be extractive in order to like sustain itself, then you're actually pushing a lot of people down. And the bigger the state becomes in some way, the more resources get extracted. And you can read a lot of early state history as these states trying to sustain big populations in a really forceful way, either by, you know, building walls not to keep attackers out, but to keep peasants kind of in, um, or to go on these like, you know, um, invasions of, of kind of conquest in order to get slave populations to kind of artificially sustain this. Yeah, I, I wonder what you, what you make of these kinds of arguments. Yeah, so I think it's certainly the case that states have largely been parasitic of their um, agricultural populations. Um, we live in modern states where we think that state power comes basically from the voice of the people. We think that the state exists to serve the needs of the people. Uh, that is extremely unusual uh, in the historic record. Um, if you look, for instance, at how medieval lords would have thought of their peasants or whatever, or how they actually in practice dealt with them, I mean, they were really interested in extracting as many resources as possible yeah. to fund the goods that they needed to, to gain the prestige and to live luxuriously and to uh, battle with their fellow nobles to get power. Um, yeah. There wasn't a lot of interest in improving the lives of peasants. Uh, the idea, for instance, of like universal education to make your peasants more productive um, would have, but just like was not at all anything that yeah. would have been thought by basically anyone before the the last century or two. So I should make a clarification when I'm saying peasants here. I mean, I really should be saying like agricultural farmers. Yeah. A peasant, I think, usually refers more to populations in a feudal, like manorial setup where you have feudal. Like anyway, people fight a lot about these times. Yeah. Um, but I'm mostly meaning it to refer to as uh, an agricultural worker in like a pre-industrial society, which we should remember was the vast majority of the population. Yeah. 95 plus percent of the population would have been working on farms, would have largely been producing food for their own subsistence um, rather than food to be traded um, for goods like a lot of farmers do today. Mm. Um, so states can make life worse for peasants uh, by taxing them very harshly, which has certainly happened many times. Um, it can also, I mean, it can increase war by you know, fighting a lot of wars with neighbors and things like this. Um, it can also decrease war once a big state exists. Mm. It can enforce a kind of monopoly on violence. And so that will reduce the amount of wars. Ironically, this can make life worse for the average peasant. And this comes down to this, this fact that in a Neo-Malthusian world, Anything that seems good that allows the populations to grow mm. is actually bad for the long run um, average welfare of a person. And things that are bad that kill people yeah, are yeah. actually good for the average long-term welfare of people. Um, so with war, for instance, if we imagine a society where uh, large bouts of warfare regularly kill uh, peasants, say like every 15 to 20 years, you know, population, there's like a, a large murder of peasants. Uh, and obviously this is terrible and awful for the peasants involved um, who die and it may well end up wiping their crops out and causing death from disease and famine, which historically was actually the main source of death in, in war. Yeah. Uh, actively being killed on the battlefield or even being killed while raiding, usually not um, the predominant cause of death. Mm. Um, so it's terrible for them. But then what happens a few years later? Well, the population of the region may have been decreased by 20 or 30% or something. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, there are far fewer people. There's a lot more land per person. 
therefore you have a lot more uh, food per person. Um, there's only a limited amount of food you can really extract from a given area of land with a given technological um, technological development and given social structures. And the less people, usually decreasing the number of people does not decrease the productivity of the land by the same amount. Right, yeah. Um, but again, if I understand like the Malthusian argument or something here, this like kind of shortfall, uh, sorry, the, this kind of like windfall would only be temporary, right? Because as soon as people mm. start living better lives, then populations are also again like grow. Exactly. And get self-correcting thing. So if you imagined a world, if you imagine trying to like make the optimal peasant society where your goal was like in a given year, have most peasants be well fed, yeah. then what you would imagine, and this is obviously extremely hypothetical, yeah. not at all how history actually worked. You would imagine something where like every... 50 years or something, you just like killed some fraction of the peasants mm. uh, in like a big cataclysmic war or something. Mm. And then most of the time, the population is like, quite a bit below um, the carrying capacity or whatever. And so you'll mostly have population growth. Yeah. And then as you start to reach the carrying capacity, you kill off all the peasants or something. Yeah. Uh, so that in that situation, actually, most peasants, most of the time, are, uh, have a lot more resources because the population is quite a bit below capacity. Right. Obviously, the process of murdering a bunch of people is quite destructive, and in practice, war could also cause like long-term damage, yeah. or at least like medium to long-term damage in social structures and in uh, farms and things like this, like destroying irrigation, right. reduces yeah. the carrying capacity. But hypothetically, you could imagine this this peasant world as one where the average peasant's life is actually quite a bit better mm. than a world in which there's no war, everything is peaceful, but there's no population is constantly at basically capacity because there's no shocks yeah, yeah. that are causing large-scale death. Yeah, well, it, it definitely feels like um, kind of, I guess, like more over time or something, right? Zero sum that like the peasants who inflict the war or the um, pandemic or the famine uh, damage at the beginning really suffer. And then that gives like some windfall to the peasants that kind of like survive or get born after. But then, right, if you kind of integrate over time or something, you'd imagine yeah. it vaguely. There's a very weird question here. Like what does like optimal yeah. peasant utility look like if you're... <laughs> But yeah, I, I guess this like leads to um, one question, which is, you know, up until let's say 1700 or something, do you think Malthus got anything wrong? I mean, I'd have to read through the original Malthus to to really think about what in fact he said. I think if I recall correctly, he wrote two, he had like two kind of papers on this or whatever. I mean, it's not one, I mean, these were writing quite a long time ago, so papers probably not the right, the right term. I don't know if one was a revision of the other, but I think in his first one, he more emphasized what you'd call the positive checks. The fact that if population is high, people will die because of increased famine, uh, increased disease death, and so on. Uh, and in his later paper, he was emphasizing more the, the fact that different societies can actually choose yeah. how many children to have. I think some supporters of Malthus, um, particularly... Uh, more enthusiastic later day people have tended to emphasize the the more negative so the more positive check story the more doom and gloom everyone will breed until everyone dies and i think right, this view yeah. is at least this like cartoonish view is actually just not not strictly speaking what we, what we see like definitely it was the case that society is sustained mm. uh, human population levels that were quite a bit below some sort of like extremely dystopic right. people shoulder to shoulder yeah. everyone starving at like the minimum level of subsistence for most of history. And that was because various cultural factors led to population densities that were like considerably lower than the doomiest of doom. Um, yeah, <laughs> really important to separate the arguments from the man and then also um, the arguments from policy interpretations of it. But in terms of, I guess, the historical argument 
of things that subsistent. There are, in general, these um, uh, reinforcing uh, forces that lead to these kinds of equilibriums. Is there anything within that, you know, historical argument or something that that you would uh, like flag or, or kind of dispute? No, I think he got the broad story pretty right. He had the misfortune, basically, of living at precisely the time when yeah. Neo-Malthusianism ceased to be a good description of the world. Yeah. Um, so basically what he missed, and I think people are sometimes very harshly criticize him. Yeah. I think far too harshly. I think because like he was living in the late 1700s, this was before the effects of the Industrial Revolution were at all clear. Um, he didn't realize that, or he didn't, expect that there could be radical improvements in the carrying capacity of land. Mm. I'm not sure if he made the mistake of thinking the carrying capacity of land was totally fixed. Yeah. Uh, certainly people sometimes talk like this, and this is a mistake. I don't know whether we should attribute him this error or whether this is more people yeah. oversimplifying it. Um, but what is very clear is that uh, the carrying capacity of, of agricultural land has radically increased over the last few hundred years. And that's mm. because we have much better technology, much better uh, crops and so on. Yeah. Um, there have not really been very strong analogies of this in the past, with the possible exception of the agricultural revolution itself, which was a major change in mm. the kind of density of, of food you could produce from a given plot of land. Yeah. There have been times where there has been some degree of economic growth. Um, you'll see in the literature people discuss like efflorescence, um, and people like to argue, did ancient Greece, for instance, have sustained economic growth or did ancient Rome have sustained economic growth? Yeah. yeah. Um, but not, there hasn't been any example of the kind of sustained technological progress at a rate such that uh, you actually had living standards improve and populations mm. get bigger to anywhere near the extent that we've had in the modern age. It's, yeah. 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 So you mentioned that the thing that seemed to change here is technology and thus in turn this kind of carrying capacity um, factor. So yeah, how did that change and why did it in some ways either take so long or on the other hand, suddenly happen to be the case that these technological breakthroughs could could happen? Yeah, so this is one of the biggest, most, like the most, the biggest and most important questions uh, about history. Like why did the industrial revolution happen when it did? Yeah. What was the thing that was special about the place and time it happened? It, was there anything special? Mm -hmm. You might have some naive view that it was gonna happen yeah. at some point, it just happened contingently. Although even if it just happened to happen in the UK first, it'd be interesting to know why that was. Right, yeah. Um, even if it was largely contingent. And what was the core thing that changed that led to industrialization? Um, so clearly one of the symptoms of industrialization, one of the outcomes was that technology uh, allowed us to produce more things. Mm -hmm. And I've been very simplifying this by, by you know, agricultural productivity increased. Yeah. In, in practice, we really shifted from a world in which agricultural productivity was the main determinant of wealth yeah. um, to a world in which other forms of manufacture and even now services like abstract services like accounting or yeah, yeah. or patents um, are the main source of wealth. Um, so, but in practice, what like, the symptom that I'm describing here is is that we were much more productive agriculturally. It's not clear if the the proximate technology that caused this is the, the ultimate cause of the industrial revolution. Mm, where did the technology come from? Yeah, yeah. obviously it was developed by people thinking. And so then the question is, why was this technology developed then and not hundreds of years earlier or something? Yeah. But, but even on the proximate cause, I kind of want to ask then, so 
because when we think industrial revolution, right, we often think um, steam engine and these kind of urban, think Manchester industrial things uh, that happen in cities versus it seems to be that before we're saying, you know, for the vast majority of the human population was agricultural. That also seems to be where this kind of like fundamental constraint came from is, you know, essentially producing food to feed people. Um, yeah, like how was the breakthrough then agriculture that then let you uh, kind of have this urban development or was it urban innovation that could then also be applied to, to these agricultural sectors? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure. Usually the story of the, agri of the industrial revolution is presented through things like the development of the, the spinning jenny, which was used in weaving, and of the steam engine, which originally developed actually to pump water out of, of mines. So these innovations are, not, are clearly not actually connected yeah. to agricultural uh, productivity increases. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess we could ask what led to those things specifically, because you could imagine that these actually are antecedented by, by increases in agricultural productivity that allowed like a larger class of people to be living in, in cities and manufacturing and things like this. But I'm not sure if that is in fact the case. Yeah, well, you get these arguments of, I think it's like called the enclosures and stuff, right? In the UK of this kind of privatization of um, lots of land then, right? Like helping... So there's certainly a lot of, leave a lot of cottage industry in the UK. So a lot of people who lived maybe in rural areas, but were in fact engaging in light manufacture. They were not, they were not farming. Right, yeah. And I think this is relatively unusual. Although people love to argue about like how unusual the UK in fact was at that time and how it should be compared to like various other parts of the world. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm also curious for, um, you know, other innovations that people say, you know, when we think of kind of technologies as well, which are, you know, the kind of crops that people actually grow, um, things like, you know, potatoes, um, things like crop cycles, um, things like that, lots of these innovations, which seem to have proceeded, if I recall kind of correctly, the industrial revolution by um, a few decades or, or century even. So there was definitely in the 1700s, uh, a school of, of British agronomists who introduced a, a lot of improvements. I don't know if in practice how much this actually changed agricultural productivity in the UK. Yeah. Um, but there were moves, for instance, to like a four-field cycle introduction of turnips, I think was actually quite a large improvement. Um, going back earlier, well, actually, I don't know when exactly these things became popular in the UK, but potatoes in particular and a number of other new, age, new world crops are in fact a lot more productive in various conditions. Like famously yeah. in Ireland, the potato basically became the predominant source of, of calories for people. Um, but I don't know if this actually happened early enough to be sort of pre predating the early developments in the steam engine and things. So it's not clear to me this is a driving factor. Yeah, yeah. I know the like Yeoman revolution, which introduced this like um, Norfolk, like four course crop cycle thing was vaguely the 17th century. And um, there's like privatization of land I mentioned was like vaguely the... the yeah, this was definitely pre predated. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how this actually affected agricultural productivity. I think that would be like the thing I'd want to see. Yeah. Um, there's also some question of what other analogous things happen. I think there's a trap it's easy to fall into, which is, okay, well, you know, the UK industrialized first. Let's look for the special things that happened to the UK yeah, yeah. and then claim they caused industrialization. I think like maybe the, the classic example I see is people talking about the glorious revolution or whatever. Mm. Um, but there's definitely a lot of different uh, just so stories like this. And like they might be right. Like maybe the, the glorious revolution really was like critical for the UK's path. Yeah, yeah. But lots of other countries have had um, various complicated political changes happen 
have had different degrees of privatization of, of land mm. and changes to how peasants um, were treated legally and so on. So you kind of have to make in the case that what happened in the UK was like radically different or better than the comparative cases. And I think people often, at least like there's a tendency for for some authors to neglect this um, this comparative issue. Yeah. I think to seek an explanation of why the UK industrialized first, it's pretty very important to be comparing to other comparable regions of the world. Yeah, so there's a lot of arguments. And I think, in fact, it's confusing even to think about what it would mean to find the true cause of the Industrial Revolution, because it's very clear that lots of complicated interconnected processes were going on. Yeah. And so I think like a lot of the debates, like, maybe like, you know, A caused B caused C, but the debate is about is A or B or C the true cause? And yeah. it's not always clear this is like a meaningful thing. But I guess just like broadly summarizing what people tend to suggest maybe in the causes. There are a series of arguments saying that geography is the ultimate reason. So one example of a geography explanation is the Jared Diamond um, explanation of why agriculture occurred where it did and why complex civilization occurred where they did. And I think this is like essentially a correct explanation of why um, a temperate belt in Eurasia had most of the complicated or complex, I should say, civilizations. Yeah. Uh, and the UK is part of this belt of agricultural uh, civilizations. It stretches from um, the UK and North Africa and uh, Spain in the West, all the way to Southeast Asia and China and Japan and Korea in the East. Um, I don't think we should be surprised that it was in this broad geographic area that we saw industrialization first. Mm. But you could still be surprised that you even get industrialization in the first place, right? Because isn't yeah, that more of an argument for like up to Malthus, but not not thereafter. Yeah, I think it's really unclear whether industrialization was inevitable or not. I don't have a very good intuition on this. I know people who have like radically different views. If you look at this, like kind of, it looks like human population has been growing hyper exponentially. Uh, if you look at this, then it's kind of, you would think, oh, it's like inevitable that you'll have industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at how things were developing in say the Ottoman empire or the Mughal empire and uh, Qing Dynasty China. So these are all early modern um, civilizations. They don't necessarily look like they're on the cusp of an industrial revolution. Mm. It's not clear that if Europe were to suddenly disappear or whatever, that the Ottomans were like a hundred years off inventing steam engines. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not clear though what it would mean for them to look like they were on the right trajectory. We don't know what in Europe was the essential factor. Yeah. So it becomes hard to then say, well, the Ottomans were definitely missing X. I wonder as well with this like hyper exponential kind of claim. Yeah, with like how much of this then is like also dependent on really early data of population or GDP or whatever you want to like measure, um, which the like further back you go into time, the harder it is because the more uncertain we are over estimates, the harder it is to know whether this is like linear or exponential or just flat. I mean, I think that the increase in population growth is like quite robust. Yeah. Uh, and that's simply a matter of like, it doesn't really matter if the world population is 5 million or or 10 million or even like 2 million and right. 10,000 BC versus, you know, 100 million or 200 million or 400 million in 1 AD. Uh, like the, the range of population growth you get is still like pretty narrow and definitely far smaller than the, the growth we've gotten in the last couple hundred years. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting question of how spiky or complicated the curve looks though. So this is a broad hyper exponential story, which does seem like at least like qualitatively like a broad description. Um, but whether you can see like evidence of of kind of like stagnation in population growth at any points in time. For instance, in the 1300s and 1400s, uh, we do know that 
a large amount, a large number of people were killed by the Black Plague yeah. uh, and earlier by the Mongol expansion. Uh, whether this would make a curve that at least for those time periods looks a bit more flat and a bit more like it could have plausibly right, stagnated, yeah. it's kind of unclear. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, one problem, well, one thing when thinking about this curve is you're averaging over like many places that were for most of their history, like effectively largely isolated from the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, and things have become more and more correlated as time has gone on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's unclear, for instance, whether we get all this population growth in 17 and 1800s in large part because of like New World's uh, crops, mm -hmm. for instance. And uh, if we took away European industrialization, but still had the the crops, would we have seen like then kind of reaching a kind of stagnation, like a pre-industrial uh, high agricultural output stagnation, or would we have seen like hyper exponential growth continue in China and India, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, which would necessarily have required industrialization at some point, like population growth cannot continue yeah. and reach the levels we are today without sophisticated technology that we have now. Yeah, yeah. This is super interesting, but also definitely like a tangent from where we started originally, which is industrial oh, yeah. revolution, why, like why? So you why? said- So geography is one set of explanations. Geography is one, yeah. So you have both like the really long-term geography explanations and you have like more proximate things, like where was the coal? So, you know, the UK is like pretty well endowed with coal. Um, and people can argue about whether China was similarly endowed or other parts of Europe. Mm. And the key thing there being that coal is just like a very dense store of energy. Yes. Uh, so if you compare it to wood, for instance, you need like vast areas of forest to be cut down and burnt. Yeah. Uh, whereas coal is basically free in the ground. I mean, you have to dig it up. It takes a lot of energy. And secondly, not just because coal is a good source of energy, but in our world, uh, the actual pathway towards developing steam engines ran through coal. The original steam engines were produced to pump water out of coal mines. Uh, they were very, very, very inefficient. Like, there's no way you would like run them for basically any task for pumping water from a coal mine. Yeah, yeah. But what's the good news about being in a coal mine? Well, coal <laughs> is extremely cheap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you really do not have to be very good at pumping water out of a coal mine to build a steam engine that will uh, cost-effectively pump water from the coal mine. I think Vaclav Smil has like some nice arguments here as well around that coal ended up being, or having access to coal ended up being really important because if you just relied on charcoal or woods, you would just like deforest, right? Like most of the UK. And a lot of deforestation was happening at the time. Like yeah. You can argue mm. that there was a real ecological crisis going on until coal was actually in some ways like, you know, a really cheap and in some ways like more sustainable source of energy, at least at the time compared to the, the deforestation that was going on. Yeah, this is incredibly important if you're trying to imagine what, for instance, uh, if there was like a societal collapse, like would reindustrialization be even possible? I mean, it's you do need like a lot of forest area to 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 charcoal to create the equivalent amount of fuel as like the UK was consuming in the mid nineteenth century, uh, and it would be it probably have been many UK forests worth of of uh, fuel in order to to do what the British achieved with coal. Like there are lots of arguments against this view. Yeah. Like the UK could always have traded for coal. Like it's not necessarily the case they needed the coal to be exactly where it was. They just needed to be able to access it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe there are alternate routes to industrialization. So the spinning jenny and other other improvements in weaving were quite important, as were water mills. So just because in our world the British uh, industrialized uh, through this coal pathway doesn't mean that was the only way necessarily. A second set of things people like to talk about uh, is culture and instant. Well, I guess it's like a, a kind of related package of things. So you have culture, mm. uh, you have 
institutions which obviously are embedded within various cultural settings yeah yeah and you'll also a specific aspect of culture people like to talk about is demography um like the fact that in europe demographics were strange people tended to have fewer babies yeah. to get married later um so there's a large cluster of things these often seem to fall into somewhat a trap of let's look for things that are unusual about europe uh, and then postulate the unusual thing must be the cause of the industrial revolution. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so this being right, just to maybe like throw some names into the mix here. So Mockier's arguments that the Enlightenment was really important yeah. because, you know, the scientific reasoning, things like that. Mm, mm. Um, the European marriage pattern. Yeah, the Hajjah right, line, you're mentioning that. Yeah, yeah. Then there's, I think, I'm not sure what... So then there's, there's obviously a lot of, I think, at least folk wisdom about like European cultural superiority. It's obviously now very much out of date, but this was uh, a strong belief amongst, you know, people in the 19th and 20th century, often mixed in with, with a heavy dose of racism. Yeah. Um, but I think to this day, like a lot of folk people have some notion that Christianity or some other element Protestant of, work ethic. Yeah, Protestant yeah. work ethic being like a very classic example of this, that like some specific cultural belief amongst Europeans or even specific Europeans in the, in the case of the Protestant work ethic was crucial. I think a lot of the cultural arguments can be dismissed fairly quickly like they're a lot less compelling now because we now have many developed countries or examples of rapidly developing countries who are culturally quite distinct from the west so japan is the most obvious counter example um and likewise we have countries that are fairly heavily european in various ways that aren't economically performing as well yeah we yeah. also have confusion like it's also less clear that specific factors like protestantism is important um i mean like the french are catholic for instance so we claiming that that like France is much poorer than Germany because of the fact that Germans are half Protestant or something. It seems a little less yeah. plausible. Well, it it seems that we're then in a bit of a pickle then. So if geography, you know, maybe narrows things down to all of Eurasia at some point of time, yeah. and it doesn't well, seem that like... Well, not all of Eurasia. So like the Russian steppe was sure. never going to industrialize. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, North Africa was, you know, uh, well, I mean, maybe not as plausible kind of of anywhere, but like Egypt, for instance, has been like highly right, developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But certainly that kind of band focused around the Mediterranean in the West all the way to to, to China in the East. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, if we have like, let's say, a large like area yeah. of like potential candidates and also like over like a large period of time, it's like unclear to like, you know, whether we should have expected this during the Roman uh, like empire or whether we should have expected this in the 1700s. Um, and culture doesn't seem to be like, uh, that promising of like an explanation here, and again, you can really make these like necessary but not sufficient arguments. Then, yeah, like what's what's kind of like left? What what other arguments? So institutions are things people like to talk about. I mean, it, this is obviously connected to culture, but it, it's true that the institutions uh, in Europe were quite distinct. Um, although it's unclear to, to know whether things like the French Revolution are actually connected to previous cultural factors or previous early rumblings of industrialization yeah. or vice versa. Um, there's also specific institutions like the, the Catholic Church, which played like an unusual role in European history relative to other religious institutions. I mean, I don't think there's really a, a good analogy for the Catholic Church. Uh, so, and just, just to like ask, so what, what role is the Catholic Church playing here? So the Catholic Church did a few things. It played an important role in uh, European demography. So it was... It, for instance, heavily promoted um, or was heavily opposed to incest. Mm. Um, not just like, you know, brother, sister, but um, um, cousin marriages, second cousin marriages, uh, even more distant cousin marriages. And it took, it put a lot of effort essentially into breaking up large families and clans. Yeah. Uh, 
and promoting a more nuclear family as the basis of society. Not that it necessarily did these things consciously or by design, yeah. um, but that in effect, it resulted in a much more kind of nuclear family oriented society. Mm. Uh, and also uh, a society where primogeniture and uh, it was like the more normal means of passing down. Right. And and what's, and how does that then in turn feed to the industrial revolution? So you have your nuclear Well, that's family. very complicated. Yeah. So, so another factor people like to point to, and I think is like actually quite a plausible one, uh, is the fact that Europe was divided into to lots of different states for most of its history. Yeah. Uh, and now you can ask why that is. And the Catholic Church is one plausible part of this picture. Yeah. There are other parts of the picture, like geography. Maybe Europe is geographically more suited mm -hmm. to being divided. Um, there's a great book uh, by Walter Schneider called The Escape from Rome, where he makes this argument that the West industrialized first because it was divided. And of course, you can then ask why was it divided and try and find like earlier causes. Um, the Catholic Church acted to kind of prevent um, the unification of, of Europe under the Holy Roman Empire, for instance. Mm -hmm. It played a large role in splitting up the family inheritances of, uh, of various powerful nobility. Yeah. And then just to make sure I understand this. So the idea then being that if you have a divided Europe and you have lots of states or kind of um, city states competing with each other, then that will lead to either more market friendly institutions down the line uh, or just like generally more competition towards more technology or yeah, what's, what's the story there? Yeah. So there's a few different ways this plays out. There's the fact that because you have a bunch of states, no one state can, can like ban things. So with the printing press, for instance, the Ottoman Empire banned printing for a very long time, for hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, and they did this because I think they were the, I think essentially religious um, figures were concerned that this would undermine their legitimacy. Mm. And because the Ottoman Empire covered a huge area, you know, many dozens of modern day countries, um, and the religious figures had influence with the, uh, um, the Sultan, who was, I guess, also the Caliph, um, yeah. they were able to make sure that the printing press was effectively banned throughout this entire geographic area. Yeah. Um, in Europe, you just had a lot of different states. So even if some states felt threatened by the printing press, uh, it's not clear, they, you know, not necessarily every leader is going to feel the same way or care, yeah, or just yeah. even be competent or able to stop printing presses, even if they did care. Yeah. And so you're going to get some areas where people are successfully able to set up new technologies, try new things. Um, similarly with, with trade, there's a long history of um, of states um, basically um, kind of preventing trade or making trade very hard. So for instance, you see this in China, both in China and Japan and Korea. Um, all of them had governments at various points in time that were very suspicious of traders and trade. Um, and for good reason, from their standpoint, people who got their wealth from international trade were basically had a source of power that was quite distinct from the agricultural societies that they were in. And this is threatening to um, like any leader, right? Yeah. yeah. And similar to why dictators today often do things that are very, very bad for their country's long-term economic development. Their interest isn't in provoking like a prosperous developed nation where everyone is super rich. Their interest is in maintaining power and Traders traditionally have been treated with hostility by lots of agricultural right. societies. Um, it's quite common to see suspicion of, of traders and merchants as uh, not really producing anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, one other factor I'm uh, curious to get your take on is the kind of Black Death 
uh, wage factor price story there as well. Yeah, so there's this story that in in the 1200s and 1300s, Europe was extremely over, was was overpopulated, mm-hmm. uh, and then the Black Death kills. It looks like somewhere between a third and two thirds of people in Europe, and therefore, after this point, you had few people, which meant that wages were very high. Yeah, and this then eventually led to industrialization. I think the problem with the story is that, well, there's a few problems. The first is that the Black Death happened too early, essentially. I mean, you, you, like, industrialization really came into full swing in the late 1700s, early 1800s. So we're talking about something that is at least like four to 450 years after the Black Death. Mm-hmm. If you look at the demographic collapse and recovery caused by the Black Death, you can already see evidence of of like I think population levels recovered by about 16, 1700. And you can definitely see people like to claim that like evidence of, of overpopulation uh, in, in Europe in the 16 and 1700s. Yeah. So it seems like the recovery has kind of already happened at that point. So you'd have to be pointing to some additional change in the 14, 1500s that then led to the Industrial Revolution um, rather than postulating directly that like wages were in fact higher throughout this entire period. Yeah. Or plausibly, the wages did rec- like did, I guess, recover to their low levels in many parts of Europe, but in England and the Netherlands, it, they remained high. Yeah. I think there yeah. maybe is some evidence that in the in England and the Netherlands, wages remained high for that entire period. But then you would be asking, is that really just evidence of something special happening in England and the Netherlands during the 1600s yeah. that prevented them from crashing to the level that they would otherwise have gone? And you see in other parts of Europe. Yeah. Rather than like the Black Death holiday period, as it were, kind yeah, of continuing yeah. onwards. Yeah, like the, the argument that I kind of hear is that after the Black Deaths, European states went like one of two ways. And one in particular being that it changed, um, you know, marriage and fertility patterns to the degree that um, wages were now really high. That meant that women kind of entered the workforce, perhaps. And then that meant fewer children down the line and therefore kept wages at a like relatively higher level, which then means that if you're thinking about inventing something like the steam engine, which in some ways, right, you know, the profit you're getting is like not having to pay people wages. If you're in a higher wage economy, that becomes more worthwhile and like worth more uh, kind of investing in. I mean, I think stories like this are somewhat plausible, but I, I think there's like this fact that you're talking about like a 400 year time period is like pretty important to think about. Like that's a long time, like more than enough time for a demographic recovery. So it's certainly plausible that the initial increase in wages right. somehow then led to persistence, like for instance, women, I guess women working would actually decrease wages, but you could imagine, I guess well, you could imagine if, if women that, enter the workforce, like, and therefore have fewer children, like down the Yeah, line that could lead to lower right? population yeah. growth. So there's definitely ways you could like parcel this out and test. Like, is it true that population growth was, was lower in like the UK and the Netherlands, like the places that really had higher wages compared to say, yeah. uh, France and Italy or something. Um, I think I'm like a, it's kind of skeptical that this would be that this would all hold together in a way that you're like, this is definitely the the main thrust of the story rather than potentially like an important, an important part, but not the, yeah, not like the key driver of events. Yeah. In particular, like the, the Black Plague, we know for sure killed people, like killed heavily in Europe and in the Middle East mm-hmm. and probably in India. It's less clear, actually, it's quite controversial the extent to which people in China were affected by the, the Black oh, right. Death. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Why, why would they not be affected? Well, it's... I mean, one reason they might not have been affected. So, China. So, one of the reasons this argument can occur in the first place is that China in the, the mid 1300s was a very chaotic place. So, it was conquered by the Yuan Dynasty, the Mongols, mm. uh, in the mid 1200s. Uh, and 
the Yuan dynasty was never a particularly strong or well-established dynasty. And uh, basically by the middle of the 1300s, China was in chaotic civil war. Um, there are many bandits and warlords. And yeah. um, China's demographic history is very boom and bust. Yeah. Um, usually in times of stable peace, Chinese population has tended to grow quite rapidly. Uh, in times of... Uh, into dynastic fighting and civil war, uh, millions and millions of people die. If you look at like the list of events in world history that have killed the most people, um, you'll find like many of the top ten and top twenty contenders are the various collapses of of Chinese dynasties. Yeah, most famous being like the Taiping Rebellion and the Anshan, the Taiping Rebellion in the nineteenth century, which is the deadliest civil war. And you also have the An Lushan Rebellion in the seven fifties, which also extremely deadly amongst you know, killed tens of millions of people. Yeah. Of course, this will be caveated by it's extremely hard to know the precise numbers. But China in the mid-1300s was probably not... It was probably... It's going to be quite hard. Like, the records are not very good and it's difficult to tell whether um, the Black Death was causing excess mortality on top of all of the other events. Reasons why they may not have been affected could be the previous waves of, of plague that led to resistance. Yeah, We know the Black Death, um, well, we believe in the mid-500s, the plague of Justinian was Black Death. Yeah, um, And so it's plausible that the Chinese population could have been more resistant due to previous exposure. Of course, no one really knows for sure. And yeah. I guess hopefully we'll be able to test the hypothesis with archaeological evidence. Maybe we can find evidence of like people having died from plague or uh, if you look at enough... Um, skeletons and find yeah, no yeah. evidence of this. You might, you might be able to deduce that in fact there was not a big plague epidemic and uh, epidemic in China in the mid thirteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So zooming back to the question of industrial revolution, um, I feel we've kind of done yeah, we've, uh, we've, a bit of a tour of all the arguments yeah. now, and it doesn't feel like there's anything particularly like concrete. It seems to be kind of a hodgepodge again. Uh, I like using the phrase of like necessary, but insufficient conditions, but it seems that like geography was important, coal was important, you know, some amount of like minimum of like market institutions and, and other things like probably helped, but a lot of the like European culture exceptionalism things don't seem to yeah. kind of hold water. And then something, something wages, maybe black death, maybe, you know, fertility patterns, but again, like not clear. So it seems like on the whole to just be like, yeah, really surprising and kind of like confusing, right? That like one of these like really historic important events like doesn't have this this clear like playbook or something maybe i think taking a step back i do i do like the kind of no i think a bit of everything is not the right solution but i think there are definitely a few different parts of this yeah. that seem really important so like the fracturing of, of europe into many different states seems very important and we can argue about whether the catholic church or geography or whatever was right. like the primary driver of this but uh in any case the fact that europe was fractured seems super important Again, with institutions, people, you know, we can argue about what specifically the specific institutions were, but it's very clear that European, especially like England, had institutions that did promote growth in a way that right, yeah. was quite unusual. And this also links back to the fractured European landscape arguments. I mean, the Europe was politically divided. It's not that surprising, maybe, that some polities in Europe had unusual mm -hmm. um, and they had unusual institutions that then led to, to growth. Yeah. Um, so... I guess maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that people like to argue about this a bunch because probably there's a lot of factors interacting and we don't have a very good, 
I don't think we have a very good sense of what question we're actually trying to ask even. Right. Like, what yeah. does it truly mean to isolate the cause of like the industrial revolution? Mm-hmm. Like in practice, you need some theory about like counterfactuality. Yeah. Um, if we had a million different, you know, simulations of world history, yeah. we could, I don't know, try and like ask questions about if Europe, you know, in the simulations where Europe was in fact united under like the Roman Empire Mark II for most of its history. Did Europe still industrialize first? And yeah. that is a question we could answer with our simulations. Yeah, yeah. Or we could ask, um, you know, in the simulations where Europe institutions were similar to the institutions we see in we saw in China in our world, did Europe industrialize first? Then we could like work out that question and answer. Mm-hmm. And with this, we'd then have we could like puzzle out all the different factors, and you could ask with each of these different factors, how did this shift the balance of like Europe industrializing first versus not? Hmm. The problem is we only have one history. Yeah. And it's plausible many of these factors mattered. It's very plausible that none of them were the, the determining factor that, that, you know, in all worlds in which Europe was fractured, Europe would industrialize first. That seems very unlikely. Like, it seems totally plausible there are counterfactual worlds in which Europe was, in fact, divided and didn't industrialize first. Hmm. It's less clear, but still plausible that you could imagine worlds in which Europe was unified and yeah. still industrialized first. Yeah. And so the real question is, like, a shading of the probabilities. And right, since you only yeah. have one world, it's hard to really ever be confident that any of the probabilities you talk about are really meaningful. No, yeah, for sure. I, I guess one of the things that I like about this kind of stepping back is before we talked about, you know, there's this maybe more qualitative historical analysis of the world, and then you have your kind of factor model, smooth curve, you throw in technology, labor, and capital, mm-hmm. and then uh, outcomes growth that at least if you look at what seems to be qualitatively the you know important step change and that led to the modern world and stuff that is not really obvious where this technology comes from in the first place and you often get these arguments of well you know you can have an endogenous growth model and population somehow feeds back in a way more people thinking about things more technology more growth or something but at least here it seems that it's like for the industrial revolution to try and explain that event it's very messy it's not obvious that it was just linked to you know being able to sustain larger populations ultimately and you could totally also imagine that you know say we didn't have you know what was it six you know mass extinctions before whatever but we only had like two and that meant you know there wasn't as much coal or whatever that history would have played out completely different in a way that the same model like wouldn't have you know computed out it seems like super contingent yeah it seems really interesting that yeah this high level picture this like hyper exponential growth story seems to hang together if you just like squint at the the curve it looks plausible yeah but then it yeah it does it does really feel like the world in like 1950 was not just like a a growing faster version of the world in a thousand AD and like some some step change did happen yeah and also if you pick the details I mean like China wasn't the place that industrialized first even the population was biggest for instance yeah um it does seem like the pathway where England industrialized was pretty janky it yeah. was not it wasn't some straightforward now you had more people, so you had some smooth increase in knowledge or something, or like some smooth improvement in institutions. Yeah, it seems very unclear. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess um, one other factor I want to like briefly touch on as well is the question of empire. Um, so I know that this is, again, also like hotly debated of did the Industrial Revolution cause empire or did empire cause the Industrial Revolution? But yeah, c- briefly curious as well for, for your like thoughts on that. Yeah, this is one explanation that I think is quite popular in the common imagination um, I think the relationship is complicated. So the, but I think the straightforward explanation, like the straightforward belief I think a lot of people have, which is that colonialism enriched the West and that's why it industrialized first is false and mostly gets the cart before the horse. Mm. Um, 
The first wave of, of colonialism is essentially mostly focused on the Americas and mostly driven by Spanish and Portuguese conquests. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't really seem like this enriched. So it definitely enriched the Spanish and Portuguese um, by bringing in large amounts of gold and silver. Um, but in the long run, it actually seems to have uh, destroyed the economic prospects of Spain and Portugal. Mm. Uh, so Spain was the most powerful country in, in Europe in the 1500s and by the mid 1700s even. So like quite a bit before the Industrial Revolution really took off, Spain was already slunk, uh, had already sunk to being a third rate power yeah. that basically paid, played very little role in uh, in European history, uh, European great power politics. And yeah. even today, Spain and Portugal are amongst the poorest parts of Western Europe. What seems to have happened is that due to this huge influx of gold and silver, um, particularly silver, uh, there was never really good reason for the Spanish and Portuguese to develop the kind of social institutions that were had popular support. So they had their Cortes, the, a, a bit like the English parliaments, um, but the Cortes didn't have the same kind of leverage that, that the English parliament did because the the Spanish king could always rely on his extracted wealth from the from the new right. world. Yeah. He didn't have to get popular support and buy-in. When I say popular, I should really mean by like merchants and yeah, yeah. landowners. I'm not talking about um, peasants. But in England, the support from merchants and landowners was quite important towards steering English policy towards being more pro-trade and pro pro-economic development, as it were. I mean, obviously, this is an ahistorical way to, to look at the process. Yeah. Um, a second issue was simply Dutch disease. I mean, uh, because you had all of the silver flowing into Spain, if you're a Spanish manufacturer, your your exports were just like simply too expensive. Yeah. Um, so Spain ended up essentially being a net importer. It would uh, export silver and producing the silver didn't require a Spanish manufacturer. It required extraction of resources from the new world. Uh, and they would import their manufactured goods from other countries in Europe. So Spain and Portugal de-industrialized like de essentially before industrialization even began. Yeah, yeah. So this first part of the colonialism story doesn't really hang together. If colonialism was so crucial, we'd expect Spain and Portugal to really be the, the four players. If we look carefully, it just seems like the colonialism of the Spanish and Portuguese was, was net negative yeah. for their development. Um, so we can then look at the second wave of colonialism. But the problem is this happened too late. So the colonialism people, I think, usually think of um, the scramble for Africa, the settlement of the West of the US and of, of Australia and the gunboat diplomacy in East Asia happened in the mid to late 1800s for the most part. Yeah. And this is like clearly driven by um, European technological superiority. Um, it's not, so it's, it's an effect of colonialism. So it's an effect of the Industrial Revolution. It's not a cause of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I guess um, quickly to touch on the first point. Um, yeah, like I think the the Spain-Portugal argument is really interesting. You could imagine that there are like some weaker arguments here, weak in the sense of like they make fewer claims, but that again, you know, we are talking about the potatoes and certain like agricultural crops before that that exchange was still important uh, in some way, right? To like help agriculture that which and then in some way maybe helps the industrial revolution down the line. And again, that's like less of the like spark, right? But yeah, it's plausible. It's worth noting that the India and China also hugely benefited from the New World exchange. I mean, if you think about like food for, from China or India today, for instance, you just like um, it's basically very difficult to imagine what they would have actually eaten 600 years ago when, especially in India, things rely very heavily on chili plants, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Um, and potatoes in China were very, like a large part of the reason why China is so populous as it is today. Mm. Because there was a huge population boom 
in the 17-1800s because potatoes were very well suited to the highland regions uh, in much of the south of China. And so it very well um, complemented rice, which you would grow right, in the, yeah. the lowlands uh, and in, flood, in places of the flood. Yeah. And so you have all this extra room where potatoes could be grown now. So um, certainly Europe was not the only one to benefit from this Colombian exchange. Mm. Um, in terms of other effects, I mean, you could imagine that colonialism could have played a role in intensifying European conflicts, which may have, uh, you could imagine, could have been a driver for developing some of these technologies. Like clearly shipbuilding technology was was much superior in Europe compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. And I mean, it seems very, very plausible and likely that the riches you could gain through colonialism would have motivated this development. Mm. It's a little different from the usual story where you extract resources from the new world and use this to, to build better ships or something. I think that story isn't quite as, yeah. as straightforward. Yeah. There, I mean, there's other theories as well, which now take us, I guess, not to causes of the uh, of the industrial revolution, but consequences of the industrial revolution, which have these kinds of, you know, Marxist flavors to them. One of them, which is um, I think um, done by John Hobson, Rosa Luxemburg, and Lenin, which is this argument that the industrial revolution leads to this like high domestic inequality, which then essentially means that there's not enough consumption going on relative like to how much wealth there is, and suddenly you have all of these. Um, kind of, sort of elites with surplus savings, which then they then need to put somewhere. And then that means, you know, they need capital exports or overseas outlets for investments, which just fundamentally leads to colonialism um, and this kind of like scramble for um, territory, which they then, I guess, like one step further then like also then link finally to like your World War One, um, that this, you, you kind of get this like constant um, scramble for more and more like places to put these savings in until the whole world is kind of already scrambled and has been colonized and then you need to like fight with each other. Yeah, I'm trying to think, I'm a little bit confused by this. In fact, I'm trying to understand the, the chain of reasoning. My understanding is that, at least from a purely economic standpoint, the colonies in, in Africa in the late 19th century were not good economic investments. Yeah. Uh, except maybe for like some of the elite in, in these countries. So pl plausibly, King Leopold of Belgium was doing pretty well for himself from the, the Congo Free State, but the average Belgian taxpayer was not really benefiting at all from it. Uh, it was, you know, m much of European colonialism may have been brutally extractive, but it doesn't actually mean it was efficient. In fact, it's kind of depressing to realize like how inefficient and horrible it was um, compared to what more humane institutions would have would have allowed. Um, but I guess that's not quite hitting the core claim of the of the Lenin uh, story here. Yeah. I think something that confuses me is certainly post post war World War Two, you had this huge explosion in con the consumer economy, uh, and I think that was something that was not really obvious at all to someone like an observer like Lenin because it hadn't really happened yet. Um, but like a large driver of, of of capitalism, as it were, in like the 20th century has been. Yeah trying to get mass mass consumption of goods. Yeah. Um, which is quite different from how we would think about um, how wealth production worked in, say, like the 1700s, where the, the key to becoming very wealthy was mass extraction of of, of peasant surplus. Yeah. yeah. A wealthy person, so uh, like a, an aspiring billionaire in the 21st century to make money has to, to encourage mass consumption of a good. They have to produce something that yeah, yeah. the average person wants to consume and then because there are lots of people, if they pay even a small amount for the thing that is consumed, the person producing the product can make a huge amount of money. Um, so, and it seems so that this argument that they're looking for places to dump their goods or whatever is kind of like historically backwards, or at least is backwards 
compared to what we have seen in the, the mid to late 20th century, mm. um, where you know people have been very keen to get consumption domestically. And dumping goods on countries abroad doesn't seem like very good economic policy. Yeah, I, th I think it's like, let. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure how much of it is goods versus just like capital um, to some degree, which I guess, right, you can maybe say it's like a good or something. But I think it's more of like just investment somewhere in order to get like a return on like money that you currently cannot consume yourself. And then, you know, you can invest in a new company that now has like a new market in, right, like East India Trading yeah. Company. I think something. the story would be something like... In the mid 19th century, you have all these uh, industrialists who have made a bunch of money and they're looking at where to invest next. And the claim would be their best investment choices were in colonial enterprises in the developing world. Yeah. I think that's like a, I don't know if that's really what the reason that the colonialism happened. I'm not actually sure. Certainly a lot of the scrambling for Africa was driven by, I think more of a security dilemma. Yeah. Uh, once the British had, take, had taken Egypt, then, well, to defend Egypt, you need to control Sudan. Well, yeah. to control Sudan, you have to worry about the countries up north. Maybe you have to control Ethiopia. And so all of a sudden you have this small investment. Or investment. Maybe maybe Egypt was like a very profitable place for the uh, the British to to invest it, like, you know, invest in, say, for instance, improved rural resource extraction. But uh, because of this security dilemma, you suddenly start having to expand further and further to make sure that you control yeah. your investment and that you stop the dust of the French from like controlling the upper Nile and therefore denying you. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems more driven by by those kind of security considerations and also considerations of international prestige than than some sort of like hard-nosed economic cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that the ideology actually was some belief that the division of the world into European powers is going to be a permanent division. Mm. Uh, and this would be like an autarkic world yeah. where the British Empire, which was being, you know, finalized and consolidated in the late 19th century, would be there forever. And, you know, yeah. in 500 years time, if you're in the British Empire, you'd be trading with other people in the British Empire. The French Empire would be trading only with the French Empire. The German Empire would be trading with only the Germans. Yeah. Uh, and the, therefore, even if today it feels like who cares about like Ang Angola or Somalia or whatever. So like, you know, the Germans uh, want to grab Zambia. Um, because of this kind of more national prestige reasons and because of these long-term ideological belief that the German Empire should have yeah. lands for their future, future, future generations. And I think this doesn't really hang together with the more uh, Latin story of the uh, Zambia being a great place to invest for the German, average yeah, German yeah. 19th century capitalist. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. I'm, I'll also, I'm in the right to make sure to, to link a like longer blog post by, by Sudaramas, who's a very good economic historian, uh, uh, blogger, uh, on this question, who I think like, like, like has a lot of skepticisms here, but maybe fleshes us out, um, in yet like, uh, a lot more detail than we can get into. But I, I think it's interesting. I think there's like, um, there's like bigger overarching question as well, where so far we've, you know, been talking about history and economic history in these like very like models and therefore in this like kind of in some sense predetermined way. And I think it is like an open question of like how far can you stretch that to? And I think like the Lenin example here is like an interesting case of, okay, well, well previously we've been talking about this like exponential curve of like that in some way like predetermines like population growth or GDP. Can you then also use that same curve to, you know, forecasts wars and, you know, imperial scrambles and, and stuff like that? And I think it is you know, in some way, a lot of what we've been talking about before has this flavor of historicism or kind of like predeterminedness. And it's a question of like how far you can you can go with that. 
Yeah, so I think it's pretty clear that we're never going to be able to predict. Like, there's never going to be like a science of history where we predict the future. Yeah. In some sense, this is almost there's there's a very cute argument actually that that basically shows why we should never expect this, and that is at least currently uh, history has been driven in a large part by technological progress. Yeah. It may have been very slow for most of history, but clearly changes in technology have been very crucial to making the world we live in now. If you so therefore, if you wanted to predict the future in the long run, you would need to know how technology would evolve in the long run. But if you really understood that, then you could just build that future technology. And therefore, yeah. it seems like predicting the future to the level of detail where you know what technologies are driving things forward yeah. is kind of like impossible because, uh, you know, or at least unless you have like super genius levels of understanding how technology will work. Yeah. Um, there's more practical issues, which is just like history is super chaotic. And uh, if you look at what drove wars, for instance, it's very contingent. Like, it's not clear that World War One would have broken out if if Franz Ferdinand hadn't been shot. And people like to argue about whether like a European war was inevitable or whatever. I think it's it's actually quite unclear. And even if a European war was more likely than not, it's not clear that it would have taken the same shape. Yeah, I mean, it's an open question, I guess, towards um, EA and long termism then as well, though, right? Of like how much attention you want to pay to you know, these like century defining events like wars and Napoleon and conquests and, uh, you know, um, whatever else versus, you know, um, in part these like fundamental drivers, right? That or like these economic drivers that we're like talking about here where it's like, oh, you know, a war might happen or it might not happen or we might industrialize in the 1700s in the UK or, you know, in the 1200s and like whatever like left of Rome or uh, in the 1600s in China or what have you. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like... There's no clearly like no good answer, here, but I think it's like an open question of. Um, I get a sense of, like a feeling there's like a damned if you do and damned like a, a damned one way and damned the other way. Yeah, yeah. About this, like if things are very contingent and you want to influence the long run future, well then, like well good luck working out like what the what the things that are contingent are that you can actually control. Yeah. Like you know, um, imagine trying to influence the Napoleonic Wars in the year 1750 when you knew like Napoleon hadn't even been born and. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just like. If everything's so contingent, then it really just depends on all sorts of random little factors. And how are then you able to predict the future enough to change things? Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, if you're looking at these very broad trends, which do they're definitely not deterministic, but it is a lot the like broad trends of population growth over the last few thousand years do seem to have been like broadly predictable at the very least. Yeah. Although it's easy to say with hindsight, this is the case. It's certainly not obvious anyone in the year 1000 AD would have been in a position to predict broad population growth over the next few hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and Lord knows whether we can do that same for the future. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, but if it's really just driven by this kind of inexorable march of technological progress or by uh, other kind of big underlying factors, then like how are you going to do anything? It's like trying to, sh you know, Trying to trying to steer this huge ship that's slowly moving in a different direction. Yeah, well, I guess like on that question, then like let's let's think about like how AI and stuff fits into this. So, I mean, the way that I read, um, you know, a lot of the like Coltec's arguments and like stuff around that is still rooted right in this like kind of factor model of production, which is you have technology, you have capital, you have labor. It seems that like at least when we're talking about like human labor, that as you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, there's like a fertility decline happening and like clearly even if it were to continue there's like limits to how many resources we have so then there's this question of like well what else can we have um to like help you know keep producing this kind of endogenous technology and then the question is well can you have something like pasta or digital minds or ai or something that can like do this thinking for you so yeah like how, how do you see that fitting 
into it, and especially with you know some of the historical lessons that we've like drawn out here, that this just like also feels like super contingent and like hard. And within like single events, there seem to be like lots of contingencies and like messiness of factors. So I guess I would think about it something like the details of how, for instance, AI might initially be developed might be pretty contingent and whatever. Yeah. And it's plausible that will have some long run implications. But I think we should expect the kind of social institutional structures that form after AI, to the extent this even is meaningful. Yeah, yeah. It's, it becomes kind of unclear how to even reason about this. Um, a lot of those will be driven by just by the nature of how AI works, how the economy works you know, in a world in which digital minds are common and things like this. Yeah. And maybe we should be fairly bearish about um, changing, being able to affect that in the long run or something. Uh, a bit like, I mean, maybe an analogy to imagine is if you lived in the year 1600 and you had worked out that like, an industrial revolution was possible. And like maybe someone who was super smart and had like access to some of the scientific knowledge we have now could have like worked out this was indeed plausible and that the, like this could happen. Yeah. It's super unclear how they could... Well, even predicting the social structures that would result from industrialization is hard. Yeah. I mean, we don't even know today like what the long run implications of industrialization really mean for social structure. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it was not obvious at all, for instance, during the Cold War that the uh, USSR would, economy was like fundamentally unable to, to compete with the US. Yeah. Now that might seem obvious today, but we don't really know whether, uh, say, the Chinese style uh, totalitarianism right. yeah. will be more, more successful and more able to control their population than the USSR was or where the soft authoritarianism is in fact competitive with with uh, liberal democracies or yeah. even whether liberal democracies will remain stable and liberal and democracies yeah. for hundreds of years, if they were given hundreds of years. Um, it's it was incredibly hard to know how you could influence these things. Mm. There's just like, I guess, a very powerful logic of, well, there's, there's a very powerful force of billions of people making individual decisions for various reasons but reasons that are difficult to control and the social structures we end up with are like controlled by all of these decisions all of the time. And yeah. you can't just like magically wave a wand and make people want different things or aim for different things. It's very hard to steer. And even if you could, you would be flat out working out what the consequences of your, of your change were. Yeah. Um, like would uh, the inventors of the printing, like would Gutenberg have realized the printing press would cause a Protestant revolution, for instance, like yeah, yeah. super unclear. He could have predicted that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess then when it comes to thinking, you know, if we're very clueless about a lot of the things that either come after um, well, one of these like future step changes, if one of these future step changes happens, um, what what are the factors to like, yeah, think about or like focus on beginning? So we've kind of mentioned um, fertility decline to the degree that like having more people to like think about more things is like an important connection. And then we're also having this like AI digital minds, like possibility of like an alternative to the way that like, um, yeah, traditionally, like maybe some of this technology has been fueled. Is there like anything else that you would like throw into the like mix there of like, these are like important fundamental like trends um, to, to think of? Yeah. So I think if you're thinking about, so I think there are other powerful technologies that, that could occur in the next yeah. 100 or 200 years or whatever so such that even if ai didn't exist you might still think things would be radically transformed yeah uh, an obvious example of this would be genetic enhancement of humans yeah. which is another way you can end up with like a much higher productivity um you could also just imagine a growth in destructive potential so i uh, improved say nuclear weapons or biological weapons or things like this 
which have the opposite effect of, of maybe making it like untenable to have a stable political order. Yeah. Um, in which case, I guess we could see societal collapse or something. But it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to work out how this actually pencils out. Yeah. Certainly, if technology allowed, you know, you know, undergraduates to build nuclear bombs, for instance, it does seem like a society that's not very stable. But yeah, yeah. the precise implications of that difficult to to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It. I think, and I think, especially with something like biological enhancement of humans, I think it is fairly clear this is possible, and I think. I'm pessimistic we'd be able to stop it in the long run, even if we decided it was uh, a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Um, like plausibly um, ethical, moral considerations might slow it down for 50 or hundred years. But if we somehow imagined the world would look like the modern world today, or maybe like a somewhat richer, more prosperous version of the current world and that over thousands of years, no state or actor decided to try and like genetically enhance humans. I think that's like very unlikely. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess like mapping that back onto... Uh, the cold takes graph we mentioned at the very beginning of, you know, either we'll continue hockey sticking upwards or we'll come crashing down or we'll be stagnating. The way that I'm kind of like reading what you're, um, or passing what, what you're saying here is there's probably like less middle ground. It's like probably either we'll like hockey stick up or we'll like come crashing down. It's like unlikely that, you know, population stabilizes at 10, 11 billion, uh, whatever yeah. have you. And then we'll just like keep going through that for the next thousands of years. Yeah, I sometimes like to imagine it as like, the super Denmark world or something where like world population like stabilizes it. Maybe like, maybe we end up like decreasing to like a few billion because that ends up being like the more efficient number. Or maybe, yeah. maybe we like squeeze in 15 billion or whatever, but like we eventually level out at a world where everyone is like at least as satisfied and as happy as like the average Danish person is today. And the social institutions are like, you know, recognizable to us. People, people live lives that are recognizable to us. Yeah, you know, it might be weird and futuristic in some ways, but like, recognizably human uh, and I, I think there's very little ground for this to actually be realized probably because you know biological enhancement is just like one example of a place where we have the technology to do this even today and it's it's like there's clearly no there may be barriers to how like practically this could be implemented or whatever but um it's certainly very feasible with with current technology and the reason it's not done is for like ethical social qualms and if you're postulating a world like our own that's stable for long periods of time, it, it just it needs to be stable against people using biological enhancement to do things. So no 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 like resurgence and like some neo Malthusian equilibrium where we kind of like end up at like super Denmark, but then you know there's like some kind of limit to growth and we like stay there. Well, I guess I'm imagining in super Denmark, and this is an interesting thing about the super Denmark world. It has to be a zero growth world. Like it's not you cannot have a. a economic growth or population growth sustained in this super Denmark world for any yeah, length yeah. of time. Yeah. So you're in a world in which like science is done, for instance, um, because eventually we're going to discover all the, the scientific things that can be discovered with super Denmark level world of technology. Right. Yeah. So this is a world in which like there's no, there's no real research done anymore. Mm. There's not going to be really, you wouldn't expect company formation to the extent we have today, for instance, because what are the new products to be produced? I mean, we're going to eventually reach a stagnant society. And that's just like, actually, if you think about the implications, would look very different from the society today. Yeah. But I guess like maybe to challenge like somewhat like that feels different from the society today, but maybe not that different from 
the Malthusian story we were saying before, where like history wasn't static, like lots of stuff was happening. Empires were rising and falling and, you know, there were booms and busts and like population, but technologically likewise, like not that much happened, right? Like, yeah, you could that would be like more that. normal for the, yeah. for, the, for the course of history. I think there's a question of like, why would technology level out at such a point where yeah. we were like at Super Denmark, but we didn't have AI, we didn't have digital minds. We didn't, I think maybe I'd be more concerned around the, the potential of like, biotechnologies to change the world, particularly over longer time periods. Yeah. Or I mean the concern it might also be positive. I mean, what 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 are the best crops we can breed with modern biotechnology? Right, yeah. I mean, like, who the hell knows? Yeah. Um, there may be whole categories of foods and vegetables that we could invent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are maybe maybe it's plausible that we won't do this in like the next hundred years because of like ethical qualms or things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, or like safety concerns. But if we had a few thousand years of like super right. Denmark mm-hmm. The progress we could make on just creating new classes of living organisms is just extremely huge. And these would eventually like radically change the face of the planet, I think. Yeah. Um, Another consideration is we, I mean, we already live in a world where there are nuclear weapons possessed by multiple states. Yeah. Um, The chance of a nuclear war at any given time is not particularly low. The super Denmark world needs to be stabilized such that nuclear weapons are not a threat. It needs to be stabilized such that other kinds of WMDs are not a threat. So you can't have bioweapons or you know giant anthrax bombs or whatever threatening society or you have to be in a world in which you're expecting you know oh there's like a nuclear war again yeah yeah and then like repeated booms and busts yeah Yeah, which i guess might look a bit more malthusian yeah although it's not really clear to me after a few nuclear war boom and busts that you're really in like a super denmark world where everyone's like (laughs) happy and prospering prosperous it's kind of hard to imagine what it would be like to be in that world to be honest yeah yeah well, you know, you can think about like, at least if you survive the nuclear war, then your wages will be a bit higher. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, it's possible that. Super Denmark might be like a pretty good place to be. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not imagining, I mean, considering that we currently are not really in a Malthusian world, it's it seems plausible we could imagine some sort of stagnant society that was very far from the Malthusian limit you know population yeah. densities are kept lower people choose to use contraceptives i don't see why that is impossible yeah no that's interesting it yeah. is a bit unstable though because if there are any subpopulations that want to reproduce like the classic example is the amish will be the predominant right, population yeah, in the us yeah. in 300 years yeah. so it is unstable in that sense to like any group that wants to reproduce faster than society as a whole um will, will eventually win and so you need basically society as a whole to to stop this yeah, yeah, I could imagine ways this was. I, I don't think this is necessarily. I, I think there's a, like at least like some empirical papers at least on this, which again I'll, I'll link in the write up and stuff. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I get I, w- w- one last question I want to ask before um, we kind of wrap up at least this section is um, any credence you assign to like the degrowth arguments or the like degrowth like picture of the world. Yeah, I think I have a hard time coherently understanding what the degrowth people are after. Yeah, if you look at the like for instance. Uh, how good countries are at like protecting the environment. I think it's pretty clear that Western Europe and the US are far, far, far better at this than poor countries mm-hmm. like India and China uh, or Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think basically environmental protection is a luxury good for developing countries. And if we want them to, to seriously um, protect the environment, then we're going to like it's going to the the best way to do this is probably going to improve their development. Maybe maybe trying to uh, uh, invest in technologies that will allow them to develop in more environmentally friendly ways. But like ultimately, uh, people are going to choose uh, environmental destruction and economic growth um, over the converse. 
And I think, frankly, it's pretty uh, immoral of us and pretty hypocritical of us to to demand otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I think the degrowth people, yeah, I think a lot of them seem more focused around um, also, sorry, I think there's a second point here, which is that like, most of the pollution and most of like most of the CO2 emissions and things like this are going to come from the developing world as, yeah. over the next century, because it's frankly where the people are. Yeah. Um, and where the industrialization is still happening. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. And uh, the industrialization can often be like quite a bit more polluting than the kind of stabilized post-industrial society. Um, this will be particularly true if we shift towards green technologies, but those are more expensive or require like, higher technological development to in fact like roll out in a large scale um so degrowth people who kind of focus on or want to demand that the, the third world degrows to them i just kind of say fuck you i mean like <laughs> yeah. you realize like what is, is like to actually live in a developing country or like what like you know how much better their lives could be with this yeah like what do you if not to improve people's lives, like what are you aiming to get out of this? Right. Yeah. Um, I think you have to have some very extreme view of like um, that we're going to run into like a population cliff and society is going to collapse yeah. in order to justify like extreme extreme views to stop populations uh, in the, the developing worlds having better access to to food and water and electricity and things like this yeah. to improve their lives. Although there is like I mean to like kind of um, steel man the like degrowth argument here. There is like some upside towards if you're just aiming the degrowth at the developed world where you're like, well, look, we've got this like fixed carbon budget. Otherwise, like things are going to be like really bad. Like you want to give all of that carbon budget to uh, the developing world. So you in the like global north, like you producing an extra ton of CO2 will mean that somebody in the global south has to like emit a ton of CO2 less like down the line. So don't do it. Uh, like you, the global north should like degrowth a bit. It seems, I mean, in, in practice, it doesn't seem like these people are making this argument or something. And I think also yeah. plausibly the, I would be surprised if the actual correct trade-off for the developed world and in, in terms of like improving the world as a whole looks something like trying to do this trade-off rather than just like literally giving more aid to the developed developing world or investing more in it or like many right, of the yeah. other myriad things you could be doing to help people in the developing world. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, yeah, it, I think that a growing people are like a very diverse crowd, and so it's yeah, it's kind of hard to work out whether to kind of attack the best version of this or to think of like the kind of more naive versions, which I think yeah, there are definitely smart versions of degrowth to some extent. But again, like I mean, zooming out or something, you can say that like as long as there's these degrowth arguments are linked to climate change, and climate change is some transient issue where we'll either uh, you know have invented all the technology to overcome it. Uh, or, you know, to repair the environment or at least to like make growth decoupled from um, environmental impact, then degrowth is like still only a temporary argument. Again, when we're looking like thousands of years in the future or something, it would be like less less that. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem, I mean, I think one thing to be said is like, well, sorry, I think one confusing thing is it's not clear that growth needs to be coupled to carbon emissions. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like the prescription of degrowth to solve climate change seems to me like pretty unimaginative because it's very plausible like why not grow and reduce carbon emissions like there's not right yeah, yeah. uh well yeah. why not yeah like for instance if you imagine like a carbon tax this i think a carbon tax is unlikely to actually literally cause well if like implemented like somewhat competently and wasn't too expensive it would unlikely to actually shrink the economy by a huge amount mm. um it would may maybe massively redistribute how resources are spent especially if the, the pricing was quite high but yeah. It, does, it doesn't seem like degrowth people are advocating for this kind of thing. It seems like they have more of an intuitive sense that growth itself is bad. 
Yeah. And I think this is just a misplaced notion that yeah. the, the, the growth itself is bad. Yeah. The externalities produced by the growth can be bad, but there's no reason. It's not, it's not necessarily the case that growth has to produce these negative externalities or that uh, more growth couldn't ameliorate these externalities by giving people more resources to, yeah, to mitigate yeah. the problems in various ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, interesting. Um, yeah. Again, like a flag to friend of myself that I think at some point we want to have like some degrowth on the podcast to, uh, to talk to about this. Um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting. I guess um, I'll, I'll just wrap things up with like some generic closing questions unless you want to um, uh, touch on anything else. I, I guess, yeah, I guess one way to, one reason I'm like broadly skeptical of the degrowth is simply that, I mean, what economic growth is, is it allows people to have more resources to solve things. And so the way growth would have to be bad is that it's, the externalities it produces are so big and so catastrophic, they can't be mitigated with the, right, the yeah. growth. I mean, then that's the kind of, right, like Leopold's like paper, you were saying before, right, kind of the Kuznets curve argument mm -hmm. of like, well, environmental protection is a luxury good, right? And like Leopold kind of makes the same argument for X-risk mitigation as well, right? Like, yeah, do you have like thoughts there then on like optimal growth patterns and so existential risk? I'm a bit more skeptical of the existential risk story just because it seems... I mean, if we were in a world where people were really seriously talking about how to reduce existential risk yeah. and trading it off against improvements in their own life, maybe I'd be more, I'd, I'd buy the story a bit more. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I, I think like assuming rationality on people investing in like existential protection versus like goods, it just seems we're not going to reach an equilibrium where people are thinking about this for hundreds of years and therefore can like optimally allocate. Right. Um, I think existential risk will probably catch like, I don't the politicians and like the average person off guard if they if they do happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for instance. And so it's not gonna be people saying, Oh, you know, we invest the optimal amount in AI safety and then yeah. if we die from AI, so be it. Um sure. Probably I, people are just gonna be radically yeah. underinvesting regardless. I I guess the like question here is like whether you think that like economic growth is like net good for X risk or net bad for X risk. And to the degree that like and again, like I think the like real argument is like, well, it depends exactly what economic growth you mean. But yeah, so if this we, is obviously the this is obviously cop out. But I think yeah. it's like large is like an important true fact. Obviously, like the economic growth could be in things that are completely irrelevant to. I mean, most of the risks we're worried about are like new technologies that are quite powerful. AI being the predominant one, but we can also look at like biotechnologies, maybe advances in other weapon systems. Mm. Um, my. My guess is that accelerating the development of AI is bad for X risk because the longer we have to think about the problem, the more likely we are to solve it. Yeah. I don't strongly buy this. You can imagine that AI might kill us all in a more complicated everything goes off the rails story or like malicious actors use AI to kill everyone or more, more subtle issues where you might actually be better off having like a unilateral actor build the first AI rather than having AI built in a world in which many groups are fighting to produce an AI. Yeah. Um, but my, my gut feeling would be that, that accelerating AI progress is, is bad. Yeah. In terms of biotech, this is going to depend on whether you think that the like advanced biotech world is a world in which it's offense or defense dominated. Right, yeah. So in a defense dominated world, you, your crazy advanced biotech mostly helps protect you from all of the shit that the crazy advanced biotech can be used to do. Yeah. And if this is the case, you want to like accelerate through the biotech as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, assuming that you know the risks now are higher than like the stable world, uh, then it's like kind of there's like a time of perils where maybe or a potential time of perils at least where like the attacker can attack but the defender can't defend. Yeah. Um, if on the other hand, 
you think that it's defense dom- like it's offense dominated in the limit that like it's a you know if advanced biotech basically dooms us yeah or if you think like the the intermediate period like dooms us uh even if like maybe there's a final state that's safe yeah then you really want to make sure that ai comes first because um right ai at least has the ups like you know if we develop ai we basically can protect ourselves against biotech at least mm-hmm. us in terms of they can be conscious entities that are yeah, yeah. protected um to the extent that we believe ai can be conscious or whatever or like you know the maybe physical humans might still be at risk but yeah it is clear that, like i think it seems clear to me that a sufficiently advanced agi would would solve a lot of our other x-risk problems yeah. this isn't the case with, with bio yeah yeah um but it it's very unclear whether we should think it's offense or defense dominated in the limit mm-hmm. um, biotechnology yeah yeah and also whether there's gonna be like a time of perils where we just we just cannot like let let technology develop in a certain way even if mm-hmm. even in the long run we think we're yeah, yeah. a good state and then what about non-ai non-bio growth like is it net good, net bad, or just a sideshow, like kind of irrelevant? Yeah, my sense is it's mostly a sideshow, but it it does depend on your timelines for transformative tech. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe it's more important exactly who's growing and how. Like it's plausible that right, got it. the US or China having like major economic crash or a major thing could actually be pretty influential in who develops AI if AI is developed in the next couple of decades. Yeah. So there then I guess the argument is like. It's less of the again like Kuznets curve for X risk that like people will be richer and will therefore like invest more in X risk mm-hmm. stuff and it's like all just like second order consequences of how does this change U.S. Chinese relationships? Yeah. How does this like flow through to AI stuff? That, like that's that. my guess. Yeah, yeah, that it's mostly driven by by these kind of second order considerations. Yeah, um, I, I guess it comes down to some some like claim. I think transformative technologies are probably going to happen in the next few decades. Yeah. Or at least that's where my, my focus is. Um, my attention is focused on, and stories for like X risk happening in 150 years are a lot less clear to me what they would, they would look right, like. Right, got and, it. Yeah, and I guess what what we can do about it. Yeah, but yeah, okay, great. Well, I'll I'll kind of like finish off the interview on that like happy note. Um, <laughs> I'll quickly ask. Um, yeah, like just some closing off questions, which is like one. So you just like read a lot of like history books, so. I'm like particularly curious if, yeah, you could maybe recommend three, um, can be books, can be articles, can be, uh, blogs, whatever else, but yeah, like three recommendations for, for people who want to learn more. Hmm. Three is hard. There are a lot of good books. I, in fact, actually have like a list of books that I oh, cool. keep sending up to date. Yeah. I, um, it's a Google doc, but maybe, maybe you should like, actually just share it. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're um, happy. Like, yeah. We'll yeah I'll, I'll edit point. it as in, I haven't updated it since January, but I think there's a list of 50 books or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's all by topic. Um, so that would be my recommendation. Read nice. through the books that I have on that list. Okay. In terms of other resources, um, I quite like a collection of unmitigated pedantry, ECU, uh, like A C O U P. It's a blog. Okay. Um, on, I, I like it's a, on military history, but also a, like a bunch of other history. Um, I think it does like a very good job of describing various elements of pre-industrial society in, in particular. Awesome. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, obviously Holden's series on cold takes is, is very good. A lot of video games kind of have very unrealistic, like, historic setups where, you know, in, if you've played this, I don't know if you've played many strategy games. Yeah, yeah. Like in Civilization, for instance, you, like, control your civilization from 3000 BC all the way to the present, and there's no internal politics. There's no changes of leadership or revolutions yeah, yeah. or things like this. Crusader Kings... It's basically, it's like a historical sandbox game starting in 860 AD and you play until the mid 1400s, I think. Yeah, yeah. And you play as like a ruler or king or whatever and 
a lot of it is about like personal relationships you have with other other barons or lords or things like this you know yeah, yeah. you will be assassinated by vassals that don't like you they will revolt against you the peasants will complain i think it's just like a very different angle of like yeah i, I think it's like a helpful lens for, for starting to think about like some things and it's quite fun and i think crusader kings 2 is currently free to play on steam oh really so yeah i'll i'll play crusader kings 2 is quite as good well. as well yeah uh, and european Universalis, which is mm-hmm. it was set between 1400 and 1800 <laughs> has a very different theory of history but i think it's also quite fun to play when yeah. thinking about colonialism it's obviously um uh obviously the it you know the main theme of the game is the rise of, of europe and i think it has a very uh um interesting model of of how states interact with each other so a very important thing is if you go and conquer a bunch of land the states around you will kind of gang up on you and want to stop you getting too powerful in a way that kind of mimics the real world yeah Alliance of powers. It's actually like such a good prompt because we've been talking, right? I guess about like in some ways, right? Like whether like game dynamics or whatever of like history as it's played out today. But like um, video games, like kind of concretely need to make these assumptions and like have these like models. It also makes me think of like a lot of politics games, right? Like Democracy Three, and I also remember this um, game called uh, like a, a essentially like a board game version of um, Democracy Three called uh, Oligopoly, which has these like kind of like you know uh, what what do you call them? The like interlocking wheels and yeah. stuff kind of behind it, and you just like kind of turn things, but in kind of like paper form. And yeah, like really funny to see what the kind of like implicit assumptions are. And, and game wins yeah no it's interesting because you can also like critique all these games and find the places where it like really doesn't match reality and, and yeah. also uh when you think about like other media products like movies and things you'll see like similar problems yeah, where yeah. people have like a very video gamified view of how things work because video games necessarily have to simplify a bunch of things like if you play a game like total war where you control a general yeah, yeah. you're like the like a god who can see the whole battlefield right yeah, yeah obviously yeah. a real general couldn't telepathically communicate to his soldiers on the other side of the battlefield yeah, yeah. or even like necessarily know what the hell was going on but yeah. no one wants to play a video game <laughs> where you don't know what's going on and can't do anything and have no control and that'd be fun like you know chess with like morale boosts or yeah. pawns or something like, um, retreating back i mean at the very least in total war your your soldiers will eventually run away right. yeah whereas like in um age of empires or whatever you can just send your soldiers happily <laughs> to their death in, yeah. in real life battles you know if one side lost 10 or 15 percent of their men probably the battle is is lost or won and yeah. one side will be running away. People usually do not want to die yeah, yeah. For, for no good reason. Yeah, no interesting. Um, uh, I guess also in terms of podcasts, I quite like. I mean, the history of Rome podcast and the Revolutions yes. podcast, yeah. both solid. Mike Duncan. Mike Duncan, yeah. Um, history of Japan podcast, very good. Mm. Um, I guess these are fairly self-explanatory what they're about. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, definitely big yeah, plus one to, to all of those recommendations. Uh, very last question is, um, is there like any research work that you'd be excited to see people like working on? So feel free to link this to our conversation or feel free uh, to throw in like something else um, completely out of the blue in the, into the mix. Yeah, okay, okay. I, think, I think most research is best when it's tightly coupled to decision-making. This is like hard advice to give because, yeah, yeah. okay, well, who are the decision-makers? Well, it's going to really depend idiosyncratically on like what you're trying to do. Uh, I think the, the most of what EA needs is like actually, actually like Brutex is not quite the right word, maybe, maybe more in-depth research than that potentially, but things that will concretely change the decisions we make. So in bio, I'd be pretty bullish on research that would actually like lead to better PPE being produced, for instance. Yeah. And like maybe bearish on things that don't quite concretely connect to, to goals like this. Um, I'm, I guess I'm generally bearish on like more philosophy kind of things yeah. in general. 
probably, I don't know, I'm a total utilitarian who's willing to bite all the bullets. Come find me. Um, but also, I mean, there are just like really transformative and dangerous things that we're going to face in the next few decades. I, I don't know whether I would change my mind hugely if I only cared about my grandchildren's welfare versus if I cared about the, the far, far, far future. Yeah, yeah. I think people like to to kind of give the unintuitive and exciting, like Puffidian view on extinction or things like this. Mm. And that's like a place in time to reason about this. But like a lot of why I think we should care about X risk is just like much more focused on on like the here and now. Yeah. I don't think you need to be like a Puffidian and believe that we need to be making um, Pascalian wages yeah, yeah. Uh, in order to to not want, you know, biotechnology to kill us in 50 years. Right. Yeah. 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 Say that all X risks have been solved. You know, we live in our like AGI digital minds and stuff. Uh, and now, you know, in this like utopia, you decide to go back to school and like do a PhD in big history. What like history research would you do? Like no constraints, just like pure, uh, like novelty, curiosity driven. Like what what's the question that you would love to like have an answer on? I have a product I think I'd want to produce, which I think would lead to a bunch of research to be done, but I would love to... So there's this book called Cell Biology by the Numbers, and it's just like, what are the basic numbers involved in cell biology? Yeah. Um, like, what's the size of a cell? Like, how fast do they reproduce? Hey, it's a pretty good start. I, I could imagine, like, writing a better version of that book for biology, but, like, it yeah. It helps. I'd love to see, like, the history by the numbers. Like, what, what are the actual ranges of or population densities that you can sustain? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, what are the factors that determine, like, uh, population density in different parts of the world? Yeah. Uh, what, like, you know... How many underlings does like a generic king have? Like how long does a generic king reign? All those kind of things. Mm. The kind of stuff that historians I think would roll their eyes. Because, you know, <laughs> like every king had a like, is unique and different. Yeah, yeah. What it means to be a king in one culture is completely different from the others. I know, I get that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the similarly the biologists like all roll their eyes because like all cells are different and like whatever. Yeah. I still think it'd be like a really cool, interesting exercise yeah. to actually like think carefully about what were the constraints that were facing a pre-industrial society. Uh, what kind of quantitative things can we learn from just like actually running the basic numbers? Yeah, that's interesting. Like kind of your 60% confidence interval for yeah. like history or something. Exactly. Yeah. I, I yeah. think it's just like, would be super interesting. For instance, I mean, it is very hard to transport things long distance before mm. you have steam power and things like this. And we fascinated to know like, what, what does this actually tell us about history? It's not so much having like the one true number that predicts everything in history, but like yeah, yeah. giving us some quantitative tools so that we can understand history like 20% better or something. Or yeah, maybe yeah. 20% is too high, but maybe like 5% better. Yeah. Or like maybe raise some questions that like we wouldn't have thought about before. Um, about, for instance, like may maybe like the roles that logistics played in in like the spread of armies or like spread of um, empires or things like this. Yeah. Um, I mean, people have thought about this to some extent, but I'd, I'd love to like try and create some yeah. sort of resource or like do a bunch of thinking about like what like the best version of this would look like that's a really cool idea yeah it makes me definitely think a little bit of the like backlash smell like energy and like history thing just because energy is like really easy to quantify yeah yeah um but yeah like definitely for all the like intangibles and like all the other things that like matter um yeah so this is something that's cool. in this vein i think a little yeah. bit and i'd love to see like versions of this for like political structure or yeah. for like size of empire or like there's like so many things you could try and quantify yeah, yeah. um and even just like trying to get numbers for like one or like a few historical societies it's again not a matter of like finding the one true number that fits everything yeah, it's not yeah. like physics you're not gonna find like a magic formula that yeah. that predicts everything but yeah no okay awesome yeah that sounds really great and like hopefully we'll live in a post utopia digital minds world where yeah, yeah we'll we'll get to like see that book <laughs> so <laughs> all right damon thank you so much thanks for having me
All right, part two of the Damon Binder interview. Thanks for joining us for the second time. A pleasure to be here. Cool. So uh, until recently, you were completing a PhD at Princeton in theoretical physics, and your academic background is in theoretical physics. I thought we could take some time just to talk about what's up with <laughs> contemporary physics. Um, and maybe one place to start is, I don't know, in very like broad terms, could you just paint a picture of what your job involves if you happen to be a theoretical physicist? What are you actually doing day to day? So I think the first thing um, to have in mind is that physics is like quite a broad discipline. And even what a lot of theoretical physicists work on uh, is on things like material sciences or fluid dynamics or plasma physics or a whole host of, of disciplines that we might, as a fundamental physicists myself, might think of as a, more like applied. Um, I mean, obviously they can be like quite fundamental and quite sure. involve quite like aesthetic and interesting mathematics. But um, I think when people think about physics, um, uh, they're usually thinking of like black holes, particle physics, mm -hmm. cosmology. Uh, and so I want to like start by pointing out this is actually probably not what the majority of physicists spend their time doing, yeah. but it is what I spent my time doing. So mm -hmm. I, I thought I'd give a, an overview of like what a fundamental theoretical physicist does. Mm -hmm. Fundamental basically, and this just means kind of understanding the basic rules of how the universe works rather than um, how like large systems might emerge from, from those rules or uh, things that might be more useful to everyday life. Yeah, got it. So for instance, if you're doing chemistry, yeah, that's definitely definitely not a fundamental physics. Yeah. I mean, once upon a time, it may have been. Um, the frontier of fundamental physics has moved. So nuclear physics in the 1940s would have, would have been fundamental physics. Okay. Nowadays, nuclear physicists aren't doing fundamental physics anymore, uh, at least by this definition of fundamental physics. Okay. Hopefully, I haven't upset any nuclear physicists in this regard. So if you are at that frontier and you're doing the very fundamental stuff, are you messing around with experimental machinery? Are you messing around with blackboards? So if you're a theorist, you're mostly messing around with blackboards or whiteboards, depending mm -hmm. on the uh, department. Mm -hmm. um, basically the big split in what people work on in fundamental physics is uh, between more particle oriented things and more cosmology oriented things. So particle physics is the study of the really, really small. Um, and if you're an experimentalist, that usually means building very, very big experiments sure. like the LHC. Yeah, uh, in order to collide. Large Hadron Collider? Yeah, exactly. The Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. um, and you build this huge machine to smash together tiny, tiny particles and see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so from a theoretical, from an experimental standpoint, um, a lot of the focus is on these kind of large, or, or precise, more precisely, like this huge singular or coupled series of experiments. If you're a theorist, there are a few different things you might be working on. Well, actually, maybe you should take a step back, because first of all, um, there are also the cosmology, what you might call experimentalists. Um, I use square quotes, obviously, you can't see that in a, in a podcast format. Um, but this splits into people who do experiments on Earth to try and measure things like dark matter. Okay. Uh, and then there's also the people who observe the universe and try and work out things like how fast is the universe expanding? Uh, where is the dark matter located? Mm -hmm. um, they're observationalists, which I guess is a little different from an, a theorist and a little different from an experimentalist. Okay, and I guess the difference is you're not running an experiment when you're like pointing a telescope at the sky because space yeah. is doing an experiment for you. Exactly. 
And I guess another group here that is a bit different from a theorist, although more like theorists, are the, the people who do simulations, okay. uh, which is mostly in, relevant for cosmologists that might be simulating how the large-scale large structure of the universe looks, and then they'll be comparing to, to you know, the observations of what we see and to like, theoretical ideas about what dark matter should be and stuff like this. Yeah, got it. I guess I could just try saying that back. So we're trying to give a sense of what's going on at the kind of frontiers of mm. fundamental physics, which is certainly not all of physics. And um, within that frontier, I guess you can kind of slice it by um, topic and also by what kind of work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Very broadly speaking, when we're thinking about the topics, there's some split between um, work focused on kind of questions in cosmology and then on the other hand, questions in something like particle physics, yeah. messing around with a standard model, uh, model. And then in terms of approaches and methods, you have a camp of theorists these are people who are, you know, writing things down but not conducting large experiments. You also have experiments. So in terms of theorists, actually, there's also divisions between those who might focus on the particle physics stuff, like the phenomenologists who are like, what particles can we might we see in the future? Yeah. Then you might have people who do cosmologists, like theoretical cosmologists who might work on like what kind of theories of gravity might we be able to test, like how much dark matter is there from a theoretical standpoint. And then you have the formal theoretical physicists who basically work on like, how do we unify gravity with uh, fundamental uh, understanding of particle physics? Uh, what are like are the fundamental theories, like a big picture, like is string theory correct, for instance? Is it totally wrong? Um, questions around like how black holes theoretically might behave, might be more formal theorists okay. rather than kind of cosmologists. And obviously there's gray, like there are people, you know, people do work on the boundaries and people do all right, so maybe this classification is already falling apart because some theory is kind of bridging between the different subject areas or doing something funky. Yeah. But broadly speaking, so you have yeah. theory, and then also yeah. certain kinds of observation and cosmology, and then also experiment. Yeah. Um, and maybe things like simulations as well. But those are kind of roughly the different the things you might be working yeah. on. Yeah. And obviously these all interconnect in, in various ways. Yeah. I personally was a formal theoretical physicist. I, I worked on um, basically like mathematical models of, of how fundamental physics might work, yeah. which were not very connected to any real world experiments or like potential future experiments. So you got a real job. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what were you hoping to achieve or broadly, what is the kind of agenda that you are part of hoping to figure out? What's the hope? So maybe, maybe to take a step back, it's like helpful to, to to see like what the big things we know in physics are. And basically at a fundamental level, there are two avenues of exploration. There's the particle physics, mm -hmm. the, the theories of the really, really small stuff. And we actually think we understand fairly well how that works now. We describe it by something called the standard model. And then there's the big picture stuff. Like how does the universe expanding? Um, how do things gravitationally interact and so on? Uh, and the big picture stuff is is described by what we might call the standard model of cosmology. We're not very imaginative uh, yeah. in physics at naming things. Also called the lambda CDM model because it is basically um, our universe has gravity and it has dark energy, which is what we call lambda, and it has this dark matter, um, cold dark matter. Um, and so a lot of the aim of fundamental physics is to understand what's beyond these two models. Um, so for instance, can we test and prove these models wrong? And, in either like by a new particle physics experiment, maybe we show the standard model is wrong. We might find a new particle. Uh, on the cosmology side, maybe we, we find that in fact there's like discrepancies and that like gravity needs to be modified or that the, we, the dark matter interacts differently to how we think it does or something. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question of how these things fit together. 
how do you have a theory that is quantum mechanical and includes the standard model and also includes um, gravity? Mm -hmm. So the formal theorists um, may be motivated by just problems in particle physics or just problems in cosmology. Yeah. But one of the big things that motivates the formal theorists is this question of what does quantum gravity look like? How do we unify both the small and the large scale understanding we have? Mm -hmm. um, okay. And when I read, you know, pop science books, um, I get a picture, which is, I guess, similar to what you said, where, okay, I'm told that there is this understanding we have of very big things. We can describe them in terms of relativity. Mm. And then we have some understanding of very small things. And apparently when you try to get them to play together, things break and you get infinities. Um, is that roughly right? And kind of, yeah, can you say what's kind of wrong with that cartoon picture I have? I think it's it's kind of complicated. There, there are various technical difficulties with having a quantum theory of gravity. There are various conceptual difficulties. Um, and it's very clear that we need some new theory that is likely quantum mechanical that at large distances looks like general relativity. Um, and we don't know fundamentally what that theory should look like. I think sometimes maybe the degree of incompatibility is like overhyped a bit. Other theories we've used in the past have also been had similar problems to the problem that general relativity has. So for instance, in the 50s, when people were looking at the weak interaction, this descri describes how certain nuclear decays happen. Um, we had theories that had similar problems to, to our current theory of quantum gravity. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that you can't do any computations or work anything out. It's that when you try to do calculations, you find that your understanding is incomplete. Okay, um, got it. And just to be clear, what is quantum gravity meaning? So quantum gravity is like a, a term we use to describe any theory that combines both gravity and quantum mechanics. In, in practice, it would essentially look like some quantum mechanical theory that at large distances reproduces Einstein's theory of general relativity. Okay. Um, that's at least the most plausible picture of what like a unified theory would look like. Yeah. I think few people question whether quantum mechanics is correct. And it's very, very clear that general relativity is not the final answer. We, ha we have very good reasons to think that, that general relativity is wrong in various limits. Okay, so it sounds like we have presumably lots of small problems in um, frontiers of physics. But there's something like one big problem, which is unify, unifying our understanding of very small and very big things. This is the problem of giving a kind of story about quantum gravity. Well, actually, I want to take a step back. It's actually, there are unfortunately few small problems to work on, particularly in, in particle physics. Uh, there are purported problems, but it's unclear whether there's like a satisfactory answer to them that we can attain. Mm -hmm. For instance, we don't know why the standard model has the parameters it does, mm -hmm. but that doesn't demand a, an easy to find explanation. Mm -hmm. um, there are not, there are few, well, in particle physics, there aren't really any problems, which is like, we need to, we know there needs to be a solution right around the corner. There's no problem along the lines of if we did this experiment that's easily to do, we would like know something we didn't know. Okay, so we exclusively have big problems in theoretical physics. Um, we wouldn't think of any small problems anymore. <laughs> of course. And then maybe one general question is just abstractly speaking, when you have big, thorny, kind of fundamental problems like this, how can you make progress? What are your options when you're playing this game? Well, historically, physics has basically made progress in, in one of two ways. 
So we either do experiments or, or we make experimental progress. So we see something we can't explain or we make theoretical progress. We learn to explain something we've already seen. Uh, and like the history of physics has kind of been these two, these two forces, the experimentalists and the theorists, like neck and neck trying to, trying to like outpace each other. Yeah. And to... Okay, nice. And what, for instance, is a really quick example of um, progress that's been made through some experiment? Well, so a classic example is the muon. So we found the muon. It's basically like a heavy version of the electron. Uh, and we found it and we had no idea why it existed. And there's like a famous quote from a physicist, Robbie. I think it's essentially on the lines of, who ordered that? Like, okay. it was completely <laughs> unexpected because there was no reason to think it existed. No one had any prior inkling there'd just be a heavy electron. Lo and behold, they just found a particle that looked exactly like an electron, just heavier. Yeah. I don't know if um, you can answer this question in non-technical terms, but what does it mean to like see a moon? Like, presumably I'm using some experimental setup to do that, but what is hmm. that? I'm not sure the precise setup they used, but sure. maybe they had a cloud chamber, I think may have been how you see it. So in a cloud chamber, you basically have, I think in the old school ones, there's essentially some gas that is super yeah. saturated. What that means is- I looked into buying them recently. Yeah, you, <laughs> you can like a coffee table or cloud chamber. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what this is, is a super saturated gas. That means it's uh, above the point at which it'll form a mist. But to actually form that mist requires like a nucleation site. Like it requires something to actually... Like how, I guess bubbles in champagne or something. Yeah, exactly. Something yeah, yeah. Even if it, even if like champagne can bubble, yeah. you need to tap it. Or, or like if you have a, you know, a, a bottle of soft drink, if you shake it, mm -hmm. then that, the reason it explodes is because now you've suddenly created all these nucleation sites for your bubbles. So cloud chamber is, is similar. It is clear. And then if a charged particle zips through it, it creates basically nucleation sites along its trajectory. And so you, what you see is like a cloudy line. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a magnetic field, this causes the uh, particles to actually travel in large circles. Mm -hmm. uh, and the radius of the circle will depend on the charge of the particle and its mass. Mm -hmm. And so if you have this cloud chamber, you can look for particles and you can find that there are maybe different particles with like unexpected masses or unexpected charges. So this would be one way you could try and find a muon, especially like using the technology back then. Okay. I'm not sure if that's how they did find it. Okay. But I guess hypothetically speaking, you could have done this with a, something like a cloud chamber. Mm. And in that case, you get this observation, you see this like path that's being traced through the yeah. cloud chamber. And we can't really explain it based on you yeah, know, things you already like know. Yeah, it's negatively charged. You right. could see that its mass was way bigger than, than an electron, but still smaller than a proton. Okay. And so you know there's something like new and weird. Yeah. And then presumably we managed to like fit that into our understanding once we saw it. Yeah. So now in the standard model, we know there are actually three things that look like an electron, the electron itself, and then it's two heavier cousins, the muon and the tau. Okay, nice. Um, okay, cool. So that's an example, I guess, yeah. of a kind of progress through experiment. Natural question is when we think about the kind of big problems that we're facing, why can't we just figure out some really big experiments to make some serious progress? So... The problem is that if we look at the kind of experiments we could build in the near future, um, they don't really reach the energies we know that problems will have to happen at. So we know that the standard model, um, the small scale stuff, and general relativity, the large scale stuff, um, breaks down at some high energy. So if you smashed your protons at the LHC together and you had a lot of energy, we know that eventually we'd be able to do an experiment where we couldn't predict the answer of that experiment. And so if the experimentalists would just, you know, hurry up and work hard and get to that energy, mm -hmm. then we'd, we'd be able to test new physics. And like, we'd know for sure, guaranteed, we'd find something new. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, I was being a bit unfair on the experimentalists before because if you try and work out what energy they'd have to, how, like how big the collider they have to build would be, I think you usually end up with like solar system sized estimates <laughs> of the collider. So it's build the collider. <laughs> yeah. Another way to frame this is that in the you know in the 18th 19th centuries we didn't really understand anything much smaller than I guess what you might be able to see with a microscope. So maybe you can see with an optical microscope up to like 10 to the minus five or 10 to the minus six meters. Um, if you look at the size, the length scales that we probe with the LHC, we're probing distances as small as 10 to the minus 18 centimeters, 10 to the minus 18 meters roughly. Um, so these are kind of like the sizes, if you will, of like what a Higgs boson would be. Um, it's not quite, it doesn't really have a precise size, but this is approximately like the kind of length scales that you care about. And I guess I know if this puts any context, but what for instance is the width of like uh, the wavelength of light, like 10 to the minus nine-ish? Well, yeah, so visible light is about 10 to the minus seven, 10 to the minus, yeah, about 10 to the minus seven meters. So like a few hundred nanometers, which means that anything smaller than that is like, you can you like, imagine like seeing an atom as like some yeah. colored like electron floating around a, yeah. a nucleus or whatever. That's wrong, not just because it's all complicated quantum mechanics, but like simply light doesn't, like, you can't see right. <laughs> That's a good point. There's no light, the <laughs> wavelength are way too big. Um, so in any case, we managed to make like a lot of progress, you know, from like 10 to the minus six all the way to 10 to the minus 18. That's, you know, 10 to the minus, that's 10 to the 12. Yeah. So 12 wild, of right? It's yeah. wild. Um, the length scales at which we would expect to see the quantum gravity effects become important mm -hmm. uh, when we have distances around 10 to the minus 36 wow. meters. Wow. So it's another 16 orders of magnitude. Um, so we are not even halfway there. Yeah. And to be honest, I think the, the 19th and 20th century physicists had like a much easier time at making their experiments. Now we're really like hitting hard limits to, to how big an experiment you would need to test these, these kind of distances. Yeah, it's extremely hard to probe these quantum gravity effects, at least with the kind of experiments that particle physicists use. Um, and we don't really have any good reason to expect experimental results before that point to contradict the things you know about the world. I mean, I mean, they might. Yeah. No one predicted the muon. Maybe if we build a bigger LHC, it'll find a new particle mm -hmm. that we've not predicted and we'll all be surprised. Yeah. But I'm like pretty skeptical of this. I think most likely we're not going to see anything new, even if we built a, an experiment that was like a thousand times bigger or something. Mm -hmm. We definitely will at uh, 10 to the 16 times bigger, but that's a long, long way mm -hmm. away. Okay, so that is a reason to... Be skeptical that we might imminently be able to figure out what's going on through experiment yeah. until we can build that solar system size yeah, give it accelerator. A few years. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a lot of forms involved in that kind of project. Um, so that's, I guess, one avenue is experiment. Seems very difficult. What about the other avenue, which I guess you said is making progress in terms of theory, that is coming up with new explanations for um, things we've already been able to observe? So there's like a long history of this in, in physics. So maybe like kind of the origins of like physics really come back to like Newton's Principia Mathematica where he, it was known beforehand. So Kepler had worked out that the planets uh, formed ellipses. Mm -hmm. uh, his method of working this out, I think was just trying everything and- <laughs> Stars, uh, no. Yeah, well, I think he even tried ellipses like relatively early on, stuffed the calculation up tried things for other things for many years and then eventually came back to the ellipses. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't like he had some deep, brilliant insight. He just like tried a bunch of stuff. 
And Newton realized that an inverse square law would in fact explain the ellipses. Mm -hmm. Um, and what kind of inverse square law? And what does that mean? <laughs> so the inverse square law says that the force between any two masses is proportional to the inverse square of the distance. Yeah. So if the if we were to take the moon and move it twice as far from the Earth, mm -hmm. the force between them would be a quarter. Got it. Because it's one over one over e two squared. squared. Right. Yeah. yeah. Got it. And then I guess you're saying if we have a one object that's orbiting around another. Mm. And the attractive force it experiences, in quotes, towards the object it's orbiting around varies in proportion to the inverse square of its distance, then turns out it will trace a perfect ellipse. Yeah. And it also explained the specific shape and form of the ellipse. So Kepler had come up with his law, three laws of motion. Newton worked out there was a simpler explanation. So he kind of like compressed Kepler's laws into, I guess, a single law. And at the same time, this explained also how objects would behave like on Earth, like the, the, the apple falling is the same inverse square law. It's the same gravity that, that means the planets are, uh, are kept. So this is an example where you have some sort of like, I guess, jumble of theoretical observations and you suddenly unify it into like a, a single more coherent explanation that also then potentially predicts new things. Like Newton could predict a bunch of how objects would behave where Kepler wouldn't have been able to like how the Earth-Moon system should, should work, for instance. I don't think Kepler, I don't know if he investigated this, but certainly when you want to think about like how that would behave, you'll eventually need to take into account how all the other planets affect each other and affect the Moon. And um, So another example of theoretical pro progress um, is Maxwell's equations. And this is interesting because in Newton's case, you have a person basically unifying a bunch of disparate theoretical observations. Mm -hmm. Maxwell actually finds a mathematical inconsistency and fixes it. Mm -hmm. um, so the story is, in the early 1800s, people had worked out that uh, electricity and magnetism were connected in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess Faraday was really kind of pioneering this. Yeah, and so Benjamin Franklin as well. But um, I think the observation that, that magnets, uh, if you have like a compass and a lightning strike, your, your compass will go berserk. Uh, this, is, this, I think, has been known for some time. And this is, I guess, maybe the simplest everyday way you might check this if you don't have a world full of electricity and magnets like we, we do now. Um, so there are these equations that, that Faraday and Coulomb and others had derived to explain how magnetic and uh, electric fields affect each other. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, it was known that an electric current could create a magnetic field. Sure. So I guess you make a coil of wire, pass a current through it. Yeah. And then you get like a yeah, magnetic field. Yeah. What Faraday had worked out is that you can create an electric field from a changing magnetic flux as well. Mm. So it's kind of the opposite if you- Right, so I can pass a magnet through a coil of wire and you'll and get, get a current, current at the other Yeah, exactly. Um, and so there had been these equations then that described basically how you know electric charges create electric fields, how electric currents create magnetic fields, and how magnetic fields create electric currents. What Maxwell realized is when you wrote these equations down, they were mathematically inconsistent. Um, for a fairly technical reason involving identities in what's called vector calculus. So he worked out how to, how to fix it uh, and created like four consistent equations called Maxwell's equations that described everything that was then understood about electricity and magnetism. Mm -hmm. Now, the neat thing about this, um, not only did he find a consistent theory, so mm -hmm. that was consistent, you know, with all the previous observations. When he actually looked at solutions, he realized that, yeah, he realized there's like unexpected behavior 
uh, the equations he had actually could support interesting electric and magnetic field behavior even when no charges and currents were present. Um, like in school, you might imagine that if you have a charge, there's going to be some electric field around it, or if you have a magnet, there's a magnetic field. Uh, but what Maxwell found was, in fact, in the absence of any charges, in the absence of many magnetic fields, you, in fact, could still get behavior because the changing magnetic field will generate an electric field, and the changing mm -hmm. electric field will generate the magnetic field. Okay. So what you get is these waves right. of, of oscillating magnetic and electric fields mm -hmm. that would propagate through space and through time at a constant speed. Mm. Uh, now, physicists uh, at the time were very familiar with a wave that appears very commonly everywhere, and this, that, that is light. Mm. What Maxwell realized was his equations predicted the existence of light. And Finally, was, we discovered light. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, you know, it was not expected. I don't think Maxwell or anyone else expected that by unifying electricity and magnetism, the, the, you would be able to explain what we now call electromagnetic radiation, obviously, wasn't, yeah. wasn't quite the term at the time. Um, uh, so this was purely a win for theory. Like it wasn't, uh -huh. it wasn't even like you simplified a bunch of disparate kind of theoretical observations based off experiment. This was purely just from a theoretical inconsistency. Mm -hmm. You suddenly discover a whole set of phenomena that you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. I see. So just try to try to recap that story. Faraday, Coulomb and others do some experiments, come up with some equations which describe these relationships between magnetism and electricity, which they observed. Maxwell notices that while these equations do kind of describe what's going on, they're actually not consistent when you write them down. Sits down to try to figure out some um, consistent um, equations, finds this kind of set of like four equations or something. Um, notices based on that results that uh, the equations kind of describe or suggest some new phenomenon that no one had really thought of before, which are these kind of like co-oscillating uh, waves. waves of electricity and whatever. Hmm. Notices that that could be this thing we call light. Yeah. And that's like purely theoretical progress and like real progress as well. Mm. Um, so that's an example maybe of the kind of thing that we might hope for, like zooming forward to the yeah. present day. Um, and there's a long history of this happening. So like Maxwell's revolution, I think, really is the start of, well, it took a, a while for the, the fuse to be lit, but like the explosion that was like early 20th century physics. Mm. So the equation, so Maxwell's equations predict that light will exist. It predicts they will travel at a fixed speed. Mm. Um, took people a while to notice this, but eventually people kind of weirded out like does that mean that the speed of light is constant only for a specific observer like what if i'm moving relative to you if, if i see the speed of light is the same in all directions for me and you're like running past me mm -hmm. then surely you'll see light is faster in one direction than the other isn't that mm -hmm. a bit weird um so then what we discovered from this actually was that maxwell's equations have certain special symmetries um if you apply these symmetries correctly, you find the speed of light is the same for all observers. Mm -hmm. The problem is these symmetries totally contradict Newton's laws. Um, okay, how so? Well, if you imagine Newton, so the way Newton Newtonian mechanics works, if you have, if I see an object going away from me at 10 kilometers per hour, yeah. and you run past me at five kilometers an hour in the same direction, you will see that object is five kilometers. The addition is like add or subtract. Sure. So, so maybe a better example. If I have an object that's going 10 kilometers away from me north, yeah. and let's say you're running past me and you're going 
five kilometers south, mm-hmm. if you look at that object, the speed that you see that is just the is just it's like approaching me, 15, 15 kilometers. kilometers. Yeah, exactly. So it just adds. Velocities always add. Got it. Now, Maxwell's equations seem to claim that the speed of light is constant mm-hmm. for all observers. Um, and so to try saying that back, if we're running towards one another, yeah, and you sh- and we're running towards one another at like five kilometers an hour each, <laughs> such that you're running towards me at ten kilometers an hour relative to me, yeah, and you were like shining a torch at me. Um, Maxwell's equations say that it wouldn't look as if the light is going at like some speeds from a fixed point plus that extra yeah. ten kilometers an hour. That doesn't make sense on the well, at least yeah. Maxwell's equations would behave this way if everything else in the world had the symmetries it does. Okay. If you think Newtonian mechanics is correct and Maxwell's equations are correct, you just find that Maxwell's equations has these weird symmetries that are broken by everything else, but like in abstract would would imply this. Mm-hmm. And people were really confused, like really weird that Maxwell's equations would imply one thing about the speed of light and that um, Newtonian mechanics would say something different. Um, I see. So there is, in fact, some inconsistency between these two. It's not necessarily inconsistent, actually. The way to fix it would be to say that, in fact, there is like an ether and Maxwell's equations only holds for one observer sitting still in the ether. Uh, Others observers will not see Maxwell's equations. I see. So there's like some privileged Privileged, reference frame. Exactly. And when you say like ether, I guess the idea is like you can imagine overlaying like a grid on the entire universe and like we're moving through that grid at some speed or like maybe we're fixed relative to the grid but there's one grid for everyone and we all share it yeah and that's the one grid that like the equations apply to well you can imagine that but this actually shows i kind of i guess you grew up in an abstract math kind of world where abstract mathematics is just like comes naturally to us we we were used to computer programs existing Mm -hmm. people in the late 19th century there were these waves that means there has to be like some physical substance these waves are traveling through i mean sound waves travel through air water waves travel through water Mm -hmm electromagnetic waves it must be traveling through ether this like fluid substance that permeates the universe yeah. in fact you, you even saw like bonkers speculation where people are imagining like springs and stuff like people really were confused like yeah. the concept of an abstract mathematical field existing huh. was something that was just like very confusing to people okay. so there are a bunch of experiments that basically verified that this that the speed of light was the same everywhere that that maxwell unchanged was the victor and that newton was wrong uh and lo and behold, Einstein realizes that in fact you can make a consistent theory of mechanics if you just ditch the ditch the Newtonian assumptions about relativity. That is, that velocities add together, mm-hmm. uh, and instead you adopt the Maxwell symmetries, what we call Poincaré symmetries, okay. because in fact Poincaré discovered them before Einstein invented special relativity. Okay, interesting. Um, Got scooped. Well. It's not clear. So Lorenz and Poincaré both discovered the, the symmetries and were playing around with them. Mm-hmm. Einstein was the one who insisted they physically mean something. Oh. Um, I think it's no coincidence like Poincaré, for instance, was a, was a mathematician, definitely. He was not a physicist. Einstein's strength was, was as a physicist, or at least like as a, definitely as a theoretical physicist, but as someone with very strong physical intuitions who was prepared to say, no, yeah. it can make sense that the speed of light is the same for everyone. Um, yeah. Let's take this seriously and work out the implications. Okay, got it. So I guess... Einstein really like fully um, finished the thought that began with what if these like symmetries actually held what if the speed of light was the same yeah for could we actually make a theory of mechanics that would go along with this yeah it's interesting because um, people often like to talk about the Michelson-Morsley experiment which basically tested 
was there an ether by looking at whether the speed of light was different at different times of the year? Yeah, because if there which was, which makes it's, sense, it's, yeah, exactly. It's a clever right? experiment. I, I think the historical record suggests that Einstein actually didn't really wasn't motivated and didn't care by these about these experiments. His motivation was like theoretical. Like Maxwell's equations were very elegant. Yeah, it seemed very inelegant that they would only be true in like one reference frame and. It would be more elegant if they were true everywhere. So, how, how do you measure the speed of light with like turn of the century uh, technology? I have a vague memory, but if you can remember, question. I actually don't. I don't actually remember the way you do I it. I seem to remember it involving like spinning like windows, where like you'd have a mirror and you'd shine the light at a mirror that's like very far away. Oh, and then you would, if the rotation was right, you'd be able to block the. Yeah, one way is you have a pulse. And then if you have a mirror very far away and you have a spinning thing, exactly. you can change the rotation speed so that phase. you can just, yeah, you can you can make sure it always hits. The, the return pulse always hits. Yeah, it goes through your little window that's spinning around. Yeah, yeah. And so you can you can get the rotation speed such that you measure the speed of light. I don't know if that's how they did it. <laughs> that's a way. <laughs> but it is a way you could do it. Okay. Um, but interesting that Einstein sounds like wasn't just totally motivated by the Mercosur Molly experiments. Mm-hmm. It really was just like some theoretical motivation. Yeah, I'd be curious whether he was, because I was, I'd be curious whether to the extent he was like really influenced by like the fact that Maxwell had basically done like a similar thing. It was just like, mm-hmm. look at a weird theoretical inconsistency. In this case, it wasn't like a uh, a logical contradiction. So Maxwell's was a logical contradiction. This was just like a contradiction between what the simple thing would be and like what seemed to be true. Um, but he was definitely motivated by theoretical problems and not by some, some question around like these experiments don't work or whatever. Okay, got it. Um... So I guess since we're on like history of science, so we're talking about what became special relativity, yeah. I guess. Um, obviously Einstein was not a one trick pony. Uh, later on, special turned into general relativity. Well, to you... be fair, he also invented- Oh, he some other like quantum stuff and, and whatever. And yeah, yeah. Chemical effect. Sure, <laughs> sure. He had a lot of strings to his bow, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, have a very good picture of what the difference is between special and general relativity. So I don't know if you could yeah, try to say something about that. So special relativity is basically a set of symmetries that flat space-time has. So flat means... Uh, so one way to think about it is if you're in two dimensions, if you just like imagine a two-dimensional plane, like when you were in high school, you did like Euclidean geometry. Yeah. Uh, you can translate the sheet up and down and you can rotate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are the symmetries of the flat piece of paper. Um, special relativity describes the symmetry groups of a four-dimensional space and time. So those are the things you can do to the space and time that leave it unchanged. Yeah, and what, what exactly is being left unchanged? The laws of physics are unchanged. Got so it. like, so I guess one just to go to the kind of imagine we're living on like two D worlds with flatlanders, and like there's some kids in three D like maths class who's messing around with our worlds, and then like we're on some grid paper. That's like overlaid in some other grid paper. They could move the grid paper like up relative to the table mm. or down, or they could rotate it, and that's not going to change like what we yeah see everything because there are symmetries. Um, so it's relativity is confusing because it's like people think this is related to like relativism in terms of everything is relative, or to like philosophy along those lines, or just you mean it's not. The, the thing is, relativity is actually precisely about the opposite. What right. it says is that there are certain things that all observers will agree on, and those are the things that physics depends on. Mm-hmm. So if you have your triangle in, in you, you know, math class, um, 
the coordinates you assign to the three of the vertices of the triangle might be different to the, the coordinates I assign. Mm -hmm. And maybe I like center my, my graph on a different place. Maybe I've rotated my grid. Yep. But we will agree on the distances between mm -hmm. these points. So that is invariant, unchanged under, under Euclidean transformations. Yep. What Session Relativity says is that there's this group of transformations you can do in four-dimensional space and time mm -hmm. that leaves things invariant. And mm -hmm. all observers will agree about how these physical quantities change and evolve over time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, maybe one way to put this and tell me if this is getting things wrong, but imagine for a second if that there were, and there isn't, imagine there were some kind of grand like 3D grid that we're part of. Um, you can ask a question, which is like, suppose, you know, God shifted the grid like one meter east. Mm. Would anyone notice? Well, no, because nothing we observe depends on where we are, like yeah. coordinates yeah, wise yeah. in this grid. And so there are these like symmetries about translation if that grid existed, but there are other kinds of symmetries as well. Yeah, so there's also the symmetries about if I'm moving at a constant speed. Mm -hmm. um, and there are symmetries about rotating. Okay. Uh, there's also reflection symmetry, although that isn't actually true in our universe. Our universe in a mirror looks different to our own universe. Wild. I just, yeah. Yeah. Um, but in any case, special relativity states that these symmetries are symmetries of, of our universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we talk about particle physics, including the standard model of particle physics, those theories are all compatible. In fact, they all rely on special relativity. So sometimes this misconception that quantum mechanics and relativity are incompatible. Right, this is true okay. of general relativity, I but see. special relativity is a critical feature of, of our theories of particle physics. Okay, I'll take a word for it. So that is special relativity. Yeah, so special relativity was designed to play nice with electromagnetism. I mean, that's why Einstein discovered it in the first place. Yeah. Now, in the turn of the 20th century, there was only one other force that people really understood, and that was gravity. Uh, gravity was based on Newton's... Uh, and I guess this comes back to the, the square, square law conversation. Exactly. Yep. Uh, now, there's a big problem with this Newton's theory of gravity. Uh, basically, it says that uh, objects, no matter how far away from each other, will like instantaneously feel forces from each other. Mm -hmm. So if I jump, uh, according to Newton's law of gravity, you know, the sun will immediately feel like a slightly stronger force from me jumping sure. yeah. from me. Um, Einstein's theory of relativity basically found that the speed of light was actually quite special. So it was the fastest speed that anything can travel, including information. In particular, any theory where action, like forces acted on each other instantaneously mm -hmm. is incompatible with special relativity. Okay. Um, one way to say this is that one of the things that is relativistic that observers will disagree upon mm -hmm. in special relativity is which two events happen at the same Simultaneous. time. Okay. Exactly. But it's, quite a, it's worth like, I guess, pausing on that because I mm. find it hard to like really picture what that means that there are, there's no way to kind of agree on simultaneous events, but yeah, it's so useful it's to- called relativity of simultaneity. It's helpful to think of what agrees. So what, what is actually agreed upon by observers? Observers agree about what things you can send light between. Mm. So if we look at two events and I shine a torch, Let's say we have two, we're on two different planets and I shine a torch at one of, yeah. from one planet to the other. We will both agree about the points at which the light leaves the first planet and hits the second one. Yep. But we'll never agree about what point on the first planet was the same time. We won't necessarily agree about like the time on the first planet when I first turned the torch on. Got it. Yeah, I guess maybe another framing instead of agreement is like, uh, there are some facts about the universe. These include facts about 
which things are or are not inside our light cones, for instance. Yeah, yeah. what can causally but, connect other things. Yeah, but you might think that there are some facts like these two events happened simultaneously in this universe. These are not included within the facts about the universe, it turns out. Yeah, so I think maybe another way to put it is uh, in Newtonian physics, we imagine that uh, I'm at time zero, like let's say I'm at time zero. Mm -hmm. Everything that's at an earlier time is in my past. I can affect everything in my past time. Nothing can affect me. Anything at time larger than zero is in my future. Mm -hmm. I can affect anything in that total future. Like if I ran fast enough, I'd be able to like change anything I wanted. Um, it's a very simple model. In special relativity, we instead have a different set of relations. Uh, at any point in time and space, I can look at my past. These are things that could affect me. Mm. And this is like a, a past light cone. Then I can look at my future light cone. These are things I can affect. And then outside of these two light cones, there's whole regions of space and time, which are neither in my past nor in my future. Mm. Now you might say, okay, those are things that are happening simultaneously to you. But the problem is there are events in my, neither in my past or my future light cone that are not simultaneous with each other. So I can be neither in the past nor in the future of like two events, one of which is in the past of the other event. Okay. <laughs> so it's a little abstract, but it's just like it's a different causal structure. Okay. It's a causal structure that doesn't have a notion of simultaneity that has like the transitivity property. Okay, good. I think that gives a nice flavor. Yeah, for what's going I, I on. guess this is yeah a bit. I'm like quite confused myself, but it's like it feels it feels relevant. Anyway, so we're telling this story about um, relativity. You're saying that we have some understanding or at least you know we have a picture of gravity and then we have special relativity yeah so einstein looks at this and he's obviously going to be quite unhappy because uh this beautiful theory of electromagnetism and now unified with mechanics to give you special relativity doesn't doesn't work with gravity and right. clearly that means something's wrong with gravity at least that's what einstein thought correctly it turns out but you know he, he was he was quite upset this newtonian gravity was not was not compatible and so he labors for, I think, basically nine or 10 years trying to, to solve this problem. Uh -huh. I think this is quite an interesting difference between special relativity and general relativity. It's pretty clear with special relativity, people were thinking, basically all the mathematically relevant thoughts were being thought by people. Mm -hmm. um, and there were these experiments that were relevant. Uh, it seems basically Einstein was the only person really trying to, to reconcile special relativity with gravity. Okay. Um, it was quite an eccentric and weird thing to do. And uh, so he worked, I think, largely alone for, for most of those years, uh, trying to work out how you could, in fact, create a theory that combined both. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out today we know there's basically a unique way to do this, which Einstein eventually discovered. Well, unique up to a certain point. It's unique in the same way that all curves look like straight lines. Certain transformations. Well, it's unique in that we expect at very large distances all theories of gravity will look like Einstein's theory of gravity, essentially. Um, basically, modulo some, some caveats, but yeah. don't want to get into technical details. Um, but so it's a very special, it's a very like tightly constrained theory in that sense. And so, and, it, and I guess you really did discover it in that sense rather than came yeah, up with a thing that did, worked. Yeah. I mean, the line between discovery and invention is pretty blurry, especially in maths, where I think there's like some notion of derived or something where there's like when things are tightly constrained. It feels a bit weird to say you completely invented something when there's like a few different options only, but sure. yeah. In, in any case, so Einstein eventually, and it was mathematically quite difficult that the maths required to, to do this were not something that Einstein understood very well. <laughs> in fact, 
he made some pretty if you look at like his attempts there were some pretty egregious mathematical errors <laughs> but in any case he eventually almost discovers it and hilbert beats him to the punchline hilbert is a famous 20th century mathematician who einstein had talked about and asked for help and hilbert knew his differential geometry much better than einstein did and so once einstein described the problem he um published the what are now called the einstein hilbert field equations i think einstein was kind of miffed yep understandably um, i guess he was a bit upset that he was scooped by hilbert but mm -hmm. Okay, and then these equations presumably succeed in unifying this kind of these two incompatible yeah. views. And it's an interesting kind of uh, epi epilogue to the story because this was all driven by theory. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of experimental testing. So there's this famous 1919 experiment by Eddington, I believe, where they tried to measure um, the Verhoelian of, of Mercury, which was a discrepancy that wasn't understood at the time. People had predicted maybe there was like another planet close okay. to the sun. And perihelion meaning? So it's the precession of the perihelion, which is that... Um, so Kepler's laws say that planets uh, travel on ellipses. Yep. If I remember correctly, the perihelion is the closest approach of the ellipse. Okay. And under Newtonian gravity, that it should always be the same ellipse. Okay. Uh, if you make adjustments to Newtonian gravity the angle of the ellipse will slowly precess over time. It'll slowly move. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this precession of Mercury's orbit was confusing. I mean, it would precess even in our solar system normally because the other planets will perturb Mercury's orbit. Um, but the precession didn't match the, what the calculation said it should. Okay. It turns out that general relativity, in fact, predicts such a precession. In fact, looking back, any kind of half-baked theory of gravity predicts a precession, as long as it's like a little bit different. Like... It's a special fact about the 1 over r squared law that you get perfect ellipses. Mm -hmm. And if your thing is slightly different from 1 over r squared law, you'll get things that are almost ellipses, okay. which right. means that over time they'll slowly yeah. move and rotate. Um, so in that sense, it was a test of Einstein's theory of gravity. It wasn't actually like a very robust test to, to okay. be blunt. Because it's more like an update or something? Yeah, like, well, it's usually for sure that like... Weak confirmation. Yeah, it's like weak confirmation. I think, I think people overstate how strong confirmation this actually really was. Um, and I think there's also speculation about the experiment not really being very, uh, very carefully. Uh, <laughs> it was faked. Oh no. Okay. I, I don't. Fakes might be too strong, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, probably wouldn't have stood up to like modern notions of robust scientific. Okay. Scrutiny. Okay. Got it. Um, but so this kind of brainchild of of theoretical work kind of languishes for for many decades. There's some some theoretical progress a little bit. So black holes were discovered by Schwarzschild. Who was, working in the trenches of World War One, where he would die. Uh, as our GR, my GR teacher would, would tell us when making us rederive the Schwarzschild <laughs> equation. Okay, that's um, There was some work in the early 30s where the expansion of the universe was in fact predicted. Unfortunately, it was discovered empirically first by Hubble, mm -hmm. but Einstein should have predicted it if he had understood his equations properly. Huh. It was only after the empirical discovery people realized the equations predicted this. I remember reading about some kind of fudge factor that Einstein introduced, some like cosmological constant yeah. to explain away inflation or something like that. So if so, Einstein looked at his model and realized that basically it predicts the universe will expand forever or contract. Uh, and Einstein, I mean, this comes back to he clearly had a preference for certain theoretical, uh, you know, notions of elegance or whatever, or certainly a man of strong theoretical uh, belief. Mm -hmm. One of those beliefs he had um, was that the universe was like static and unchanging. Mm -hmm. There was like 
this was like very common in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries. I think partly as a reaction, because obviously previous to that, um, a lot of religious thought had quite upheld the creation of the earth um, mm -hmm. uh, and the earth was a finite, like, the universe was a finite lifespan. Whereas the ancient Greeks were quite fond of like a universe that was arbitrarily big. Um, so he believed the, the, the universe should be like static and unchanging. Uh, and to try and stop the expansion, he postulated that there was this cosmological constant that would exactly cancel out this expanding factor. And there's a straightforward modification to Einstein's theory that you can do that, that has this effect. In fact, it's basically like the only straightforward way you can change the equations. Uh, it's called a cosmological constant. The problem was then, then he realized after making this adjustment that uh, it wasn't a stable universe. So basically imagine like a pencil standing on its edge. Yeah. If everything is perfectly still, yeah. that pencil standing on its edge. Yeah, like on its point. Right? On its point, yeah. yeah, on its point. I guess I don't know what it means. Yeah, <laughs> like on a sharpened point, it could yeah. stay there forever. But in practice, if you put your pencil there, it's always going to be slightly tilted somewhere or another. Yeah. And it'll fall down. Likewise with Einstein's uh, universe, if the cosmological constant was exactly the right value, mm -hmm. it would be stationary. If the okay. cosmological constant was slightly too big, it would end up expanding. Right, it's, it's kind of unstable. Slightly too small, it? it'll contract. Even worse, if you have your universe, parts of the universe will be slightly too dense and contract. Other parts of the universe will be slightly not dense enough and expand. Okay. So Einstein uh, later would call, well, at least there's an apocryphal saying. I'm not sure if it's actually true, but it, it called the cosmological constant his his greatest mistake. Okay, a rare blunder then. But well, it's not necessarily. <laughs> I don't know if Einstein was quite quite perfect. Um, okay, fine. He spent most of the rest of his life trying to trying to disprove quantum mechanics and trying to find a unified theory of electromagnetism and general relativity. Something we now know is like just a, a stupid aim to be mm -hmm. blunt. Um, Again, this comes back to like the strong theoretical prejudice. He had a brilliant first half of his career. I mean, his other than maybe Newton, he is the most important theor like the most important physicist who has ever lived. Yeah. Uh, yet his the second half of his career was completely wasted. Mm -hmm. um, very very little of what he did is of any relevance, and this was because he refused to to entertain the thought that quantum mechanics might be correct. So beware your theoretical prejudices. All right, so. Um, I guess we're, we're telling this kind of whistle-stop tour physics, of yeah. <laughs> all of physics. Um, and I actually interrupted you. So you were talking about relativity and then subsequently other discoveries like mm. of inflation, Schwarzschild radius and... Schwarzschild, the, the black hole discovery. Yeah. So, um, so basically, I think the, the point I was making is that Einstein's theory of general relativity was uh, a theoretical beast. Like it was made by a theorist for theoretical reasons. And it took a long time for it to have any kind of experimental or observational because a lot of the uh, a lot of the applications are to astronomy. So, it, But it took a long time for these applications to actually become available. It was only in the 60s and the 70s in, in what's called the golden, the golden age of relativity, mm -hmm. um, where people really took seriously in general relativity as a, as a theory of gravity and really like worked out the consequences. Okay. So this is where people like Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking um, where they got their break, as it were. Um, yeah. um, and, and also when, you know, we started discovering all sorts of cool things like, you know, quasars and neutron stars, at least, like, actually started to, to look hard for these objects. Um, I guess the neutron star work maybe was done a little earlier. In, in any case. Um, okay, so big progress in 
cosmology in the second half of the 20th century mm. based on taking seriously general relativity. Yeah. And this is an example where the theorists were like clearly winning the race. And you can imagine there's like a race sure. between the, the theorists and the experimentalists. Yeah. With the experimentalists like trying to find things the theorists can't explain. And the theorists are trying to like predict all these phenomena that the experimentalists can't see yet. Yeah. And you know, at any point in time in different fields, like either the theorists or the experimentalists have like the leg off. And clearly Einstein and general relativity was just like it clearly had like the leg up over the experimental and observational efforts for much of the 20th century. Sure. Okay, so it's like one nil <laughs> theorists coming into so the... Sorry, 1003 nil. I mean, it's <laughs> like extra time of the 20th century. Um, yeah, so what happens next in this like stupidly simplified story of physics? Well, I mean, there's kind of two different uh, trajectories. You could ask about like how does the cosmology and astronomy evolve and then you can look at instead what were most physicists actually doing if they weren't working on general relativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the big the big progress was the development of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was first discovered in the 1920s, mm-hmm. and this laid the foundation for chemistry. I mean, obviously people knew about chemistry beforehand, yeah. but by the end of the 1920s, we basically had a complete picture of how chemistry worked from like a fundamental standpoint. I mean, people obviously still do chemistry and quantum chemistry to this day. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah. a lot of things to be worked out. Um, but in principle, by that point, we were like, yes, we think we understand how chemical bonding would emerge from more fundamental principles. Uh, then in the 1930s, people, and I mean, obviously in the 1910s and 20s, there's also work on nuclear physics. So by the 30s and 40s, people were investigating how does nuclear physics work? How is nuclear physics different from quantum physics? So the way to think of quantum mechanics, so the terms are also used like in quite confusing ways. What, the way you should think about quantum mechanics is kind of like a, an operating system. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of ways a theory can be quantum mechanical. Quantum mechanics is like a broad set of principles or something that all your theories share. Um, when people say quantum physics, it's just very misle- it's very confusing to work out what they actually mean. Okay, um, so that's kind of like a vague term. Yeah, usually they mean things like applications of quantum mechanics to certain like quantum technologies. But it can mean like different things to different people. People work on what's called the foundations, foundational quantum mechanics stuff, mm-hmm. which questions like Bell's inequality sure. and quantum measurement. They're not really fundamental in the way that fundamental physics is fundamental. I mean, the people working on it think it is, but okay. mostly, like, but it isn't. M- most like fundamental fundamental physicists don't expect quantum mechanics to be proven wrong. Okay. Um, obviously, the quantum uh, technology side of things is quite interesting and. Um, certainly, like there are a bunch of unintuitive properties of quantum mechanics that, and quantum information theory that took quite a while for people to, to understand. Okay, so am I right in thinking that most of quantum mechanics, as something like a kind of operating system yeah. or set of um, frameworks, sits like some layer above the really fundamental? Yeah, so part of physics stuff. Quantum mechanics is like everything that is yeah. uh, runs on like quantum mechanical principles. Okay. When people do quantum physics, what they usually mean is they explore like relatively simple quantum mechanical systems that might actually be like atoms or molecules or like condensates or whatever. And it's usually Mm -hmm. non-relativistic. What our theories of particle physics are, are there there theories that are called quantum field theories that are both quantum mechanical and special relativistic. And there are lots of different kinds of these quantum field theories, but basically particle physicists study like the, the, the theories that describe yeah. Uh, subatomic particle interactions. Okay. okay. 
And then, sorry, so nuclear physics fits into this. So one way, so another way you could break out physics <laughs> is the uh, is the actual things being described. So you've got like molecular physics, atomic physics. Um, so, you know, molecular physics is basically like the physics of how molecules behave. Obviously, this is starting to branch into chemistry and quantum chemistry, which is, you know, how do atoms bond together. And you've got atomic physics, which describes how individual atoms behave. A lot of this will be interested in like uh, how will an atom behave in an electric field or like how it will interact with a light. Uh, and then within an atom, there's a nucleus. And so nuclear physics studies the nuclei. Okay. Uh, and when, within the nuclei, there are protons and neutrons. And so hadronic physics describes things like protons and neutrons and also heavier versions of these protons and neutrons. Okay. Uh, particle physics basically describes everything that's subnuclear. So hadrons would be, would be a thing they study. They also study things like electrons and positrons and neutrinos. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's a very useful terminology digression. Um, so, returning back to this story, <laughs> so many I can't tangents. remember where we were. Yeah, I don't remember where the tangent ends and the the core begins. So, people in the 1930s and 40s and 50s were working on nuclear physics, and then as they began to understand nuclei better and better, they they discovered the strong and weak nuclear interactions. And then, by the 1950s and 60s, people are starting to try and understand how all of these different interactions fit together, mm-hmm. including all these heavier cousins of the proton and neutron that they'd discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a few different theoretical and experimental kind of breakthroughs in the 60s and 70s. Um, and what this results in is some understanding that protons and neutrons are not fundamental particles. They're built out of quarks. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gives you what it's called QCD, quantum chromodynamics, and that describes the strong nuclear force. Mm-hmm. At the same time, people realized that the the weak nuclear force was in fact described um, in this kind of complicated, like by this mechanism called the Higgs mechanism. Uh, and the, if you included the weak interaction, the strong interaction, and what we already knew about electromagnetism, you could write down one model that described everything we understood, the standard model, which is completely consistent with itself and included all three of those forces. Uh, so by that point, you know, the theorists can declare, look, Everything we can see, we uh, we can now describe its model. You know, experimentalists like your turn to find something new. Obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that. But you know, there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether the standard model in fact described the correct physics that we see. You know, it's like a lot of work to start with the equations and actually check does this predict the right things. Mm-hmm. In particular, like co- computing the proton mass from the standard model is just completely fucked. Like it is, it is an extremely extremely hard problem. That the only way we know how to do this involves supercomputers. Uh, and I think when I was an undergrad, they had gotten it to a few percent, like the correct answer to within like 3% or something. Like, <laughs> right. Okay. Enough to be like pretty confident that we've got the right answer. Yeah. But still like, Interesting. you know. Okay, so quickly taking stock. It sounds to me like, and please tell me if I'm wrong, um, up until where we are, which is something like the 1970s, we have, when we're talking about fundamental physics, two kind of tracks. One is talking about relativity and then later on deriving things in terms of cosmology. Um, another has to do with the development of quantum mechanics. And, and particle physics. And particle physics, mm. got it. And these two tracks are like relatively parallel and independent, although some yeah. people go between yeah. them. I mean, there's some overlap, for instance, if you want to understand how stars you know, work, then that relies on nuclear synthesis. Sure. So definitely cross-pollination. But for the most part, the particle physicists didn't think about cosmology. And I assume, I guess, the astrophysicists and cosmologists needed to know a bit about particle physics, but like, yeah. there wasn't their focus. 
another interesting thing up to this point is that in particle physics, the, the progress, the experimentalists and theorists had been constantly like, you know, back and forth, you know, the theorists would find new stuff or the theorists would explain new things and predict new things. The experimentalists would find new things and predict new things. Yeah, got it. And then in the 1970s, basically the theorists like suddenly come out way ahead. They, they like, they get the standard model. They say, look, this looks like it might actually be it. Um, I mean, I don't think people, this, I don't know if people actually realized that at the time, but they definitely finally had a theory that kind of predicted everything and didn't seem to need anything new. Okay, so there's no like, I couldn't do an experiment and be like, explain that, your theory doesn't cover that. Or like, huh, that's weird. I have no idea why that's going on. Yeah, there was nothing that was immediate. I mean, it, it was obviously, it took a while to, for people to really be confident that, that this was this was true, but it seemed that way. And it did turn out, lo and behold, after more, more work that in fact, like the, the things that didn't seem to have matched the standard model went away. The, the, the things that we didn't understand about the standard model could be explained. Um, the standard model did predict a bunch of things that weren't seen experimentally. And so there was this long catch-up game in the in particle physics of experimentalists building bigger and better colliders mm -hmm. to find the new particles. And so this culminated in 2012 or 2011, I believe, with the Higgs boson discovery. Now, for theoretical physicists, this was kind of boring. I mean, that's a, not too dismissive, but come on, we knew there was going to be a Higgs boson. Like, it was certainly going to be discovered. And so the story here is the standard model, which has already been constructed, it predicts the existence of this thing called a Higgs boson. It was more like a, a kind of further confirmation. Yeah, for the experimental, for the theorists, it was definitely a, I mean, the fact that we could measure the mass is interesting because the mass could not be determined from theory. The mass was a free parameter still. But otherwise, from a theoretical physicist standpoint, it was extremely unsurprising that, that we found the Higgs boson. Like it was mathematically necessary that the Higgs boson existed. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was quite a uh, demoralizing or depressing because once we found the Higgs boson, we also found nothing else that we didn't find any other reason to doubt the standard model. Okay. It was like the nightmare scenario for a theoretical physicist. Just because it's like, there's nothing new to get your teeth into, yeah, no mystery. Exactly. Once yeah. you once you can explain everything, like what's there to do? <laughs> Yeah. Um, this has like been a big problem for the for the field in the last fifty years. Um, what do you do once you've solved it? Like you know, it's like the person who you know spends their life aiming to be a, a billionaire or something. Like, what do you <laughs> right. do once you've succeeded? Yeah. Okay. So we find the Higgs boson. Um, find nothing else. Find nothing else. <laughs> that was fairly recent. Like, what is the state of affairs then, in terms of the like real frontier of contemporary? Um, theoretical physics, like when it's, it sounds like it's almost kind of hard to find like really kind of um, obvious problems to get your teeth into. Like what are people doing? So the experimentalists will be busy for, for a long time. So I mean, I might say from like a theoretical standpoint, you know, it's, it's boring if the Higgs boson obviously existed. Experimentalists are a skeptical bunch. You know, they don't trust us that like, I don't know why, I'm a pretty trustworthy guy. Um, yeah, they, and there is like a lot to be done and to be measured and the Higgs, so the, the Large Hadron Collider will be producing data for a long time to come. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's some, there's some hope they find something new. I would, I would probably bet fairly long odds that we're not going to find anything new. Like maybe, maybe like a, a 10 to 1 odds that the LHC doesn't produce new physics. I'd love to be proven wrong. Okay. Um, now for a theorist, um, there's a few things that you could do. And basically, theoretical physicists, like the, the, the things that theoretical physicists kind of like diverged quite a lot from the 70s onwards, a bit like how one species will give rise to many different species once they, 
geographically separate. Um, so the phenomenologists were the ones who, I mean, it's a bit like the sundering of the elves and Lord of the Rings or whatever. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> the phenomenologists were the ones who, who stayed true to like experiments are the important thing. Um, and they tried to basically find models that would uh, be experimentally testable. Mm -hmm. There are some interesting properties of the standard model. Some people think that there are flaws in the standard model. Unfortunately, experiments have proven them wrong. I think there, I think there are also like theoretical reasons to think that this their intuition was wrong. Mm -hmm. But in any case, people wanted to try and like make a more elegant version of the standard model, or like a version of the standard model that had different technical properties. Mm -hmm. um, there was like a lot of effort, for instance, to make a supersymmetric standard model for various reasons. There's also Technicolor and other exotic things. Yeah. Um, so the guiding light of the phenomenologists was: what if there's something new? What if the standard model is wrong? How can we test it? Mm -hmm. the, the formal theorists, on the other hand started to work on a different question, one that had been ignored hither to that point. And that was, how can we unify gravity with, with quantum mechanics? Okay. Now, before the 1970s, it was like obviously a stupid idea. We didn't understand how particle physics worked. Gravity was irrelevant for any experiments you could do. The argument about like the distance scale being 16 orders of magnitude too small. Look, I mean, like, why would you, we've got like bigger problems to work on. It's like, you know, overpopulation on Mars. Like, what, sure. you know, we, we know like, <laughs> The, we can't predict the results of the experiments we see. Why like worry about experiments that we'll never be able to do? Once we got the standard model, I, I guess maybe that gave people the arrogance to start thinking like, what if this is right all the way up to the level? Like, what if this is right all the way to the quantum gravity scale? Um, how do we unify this, this gravity thing with this quantum mechanics thing? Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is where you get things like grand unified theories, where you get string theory. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the, and the genesis of string theory is quite weird because originally it was proposed as a theory of how protons and neutrons and other uh, strongly interacting particles behaved mm -hmm. uh, and kind of languished in the 1970s because we discovered the correct theory. So you didn't need this like theory of strings to describe everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it always had this problem of including a massless spin to particle. Uh, now, the graviton, the thing that you would expect to see in a quantum theory of gravity, mm -hmm is a massless spin two particle. And so people eventually realized in the late seventies, I think my history is probably a bit cartoonish, but th this theory that was always broken because it always seemed to contain this huh. dastardly spin two massless particle. Maybe that's teaching us something like, yeah, it's actually, you know, this is a theory of quantum gravity. Um, it kind of rhymes with things you were talking about earlier. Yeah. These other episodes from history of physics, where you start with this kind of spurious prediction from this theory that otherwise explains things and yeah. then turns out it is correct i don't think it's like i you know i think people are like are kind of partial on string theory at least don't understand how theoretical physics has worked, worked in the past it is like super weird and fascinating that like a fairly plausible kind of janky thing you might do which is rather than have particles you start with strings and you try and make a quantum theory of, of strings rather than a quantum theory of particles. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, I have no idea what strings are, but I'm just going to go sure. with it. The idea of a, like a particle is like a point that travels through time. Okay. A string is like a one-dimensional line that travels through time. Okay. It's like literally like you can imagine this is like an infinitely thin string that, that travels through time. So like if you look in space and time, it's going to be like a tube, whereas like a particle is going to be like a trajectory. Okay. Um, in any case, if you try and make a quantum theory of this, it seems to always want to have a massless spin two particle that looks like what you'd expect in the theory of quantum gravity. So people naturally eventually started to come around to like, huh, that's weird. Mm -hmm. And in the 80s and 90s developed these string theories that could in fact plausibly describe our universe. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and this rhymes a lot with what people, you know, what people like Einstein or Maxwell were doing, which was like trying to think of theoretical consistency conditions yeah. and try and like come up with a theory. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, so I guess this is something like the punchline of the last hour of conversation, right? So we've been talking about these, you know, episodes of progress in um, our like theoretical understanding of physics. And maybe there are some analogies to where people find themselves today, which is there are, I guess, different kind of attempts at figuring out what's up with quantum gravity um, you're talking about this kind of, you know, massless spin two particle thing. And that seems like that's a kind of point for string theory, but there's some, I guess, bigger question, which is like, what lessons are reasonable to draw from that story when it comes to trying to kind of make some rough, reasonable prediction of what we might be able to figure out in the next, you know, few years or decades. Yeah. So I think. Um, I think the string theory story has like a, a quite a few interesting twists and turns because yeah, obviously it's, it, it's the year 20, <laughs> it's the year 2022. And like, you know, I think it's not like string theory has failed. Sometimes, I mean, you see media discussion of string theory. It's almost always crap for various reasons. Like popular physics is uh, unfortunately pretty, pretty dire, but we're in an interesting place where string theory is not like a failure in the sense of we know it's wrong. It's not a success in that we know it's right. It's we we just kind of don't know what to make of it, um, and we don't have a way of we don't really have good ways of making mathematical progress on it, and we don't re we certainly don't have ways of making experimental progress on it. Yeah. We don't really have any alternatives either. People like to claim that they've like that they're like there's loop quantum gravity or other stuff. Basically, none of it seems to work as far as I can tell. I mean, physicists will jump, theoretical physicists will like explore anything that is like halfway decent. Like they're very underemployed. <laughs> you know, they're really looking for things to work on that are plausibly like more exciting. Like the, you know, so if there were alternative approaches that like looked halfway decent, I think they would get a lot of attention. And I think the fact that like other ideas haven't caught on is largely a sign that they're like pretty flawed. Yeah. For other reasons. What are some factors here? One is where you can like maybe um form some expectations based on the history of physics yeah and hope there have been like brief periods of kind of stagnation and confusion followed by these like breakthroughs just in terms of theory um maybe that's like a reason for hope uh on the other hand we have these we can be pretty confident that it's going to be very hard to get experimental evidence maybe in a way which is kind of actually unique in the history of physics because because of the like huge step required to get interesting results um and then maybe there's some uniquely hard problem here where like a lot of really smart people are like banging their heads against this problem and it's not as if at any point in the history of physics so many people have like so persistently tried to like figure out what's up without anything yielding so yeah i guess I'd love to the see question the is what actual, it'd be interesting to see like the the question of how much fundamental physics thought has occurred over time yeah I, i'm right. sure you're like aware of these stats like 90 plus percent of sure. people with phds are alive Life today, today yeah. for instance this is certainly true of theoretical physics although the field has stagnated uh, in the last like 20 years yeah and i guess um, just to finish the, the thought on that because it's kind of like obvious but worth saying which is like it's kind of useful thinking in like log space of total researchers on a problem right mm. um in terms of output you should expect to get. It's not going to be linear um, because of diminishing returns to more yeah. research. 
But there is a problem which is like a decent fraction of all the world is doing research, not more than a percent on the relevant thing, but um, more than like, I don't know, a thousand people. And so you can't really sustain many more doublings until the entire world is doing theoretical physics. Well, also, if like people, like the funding is right up, no one wants to fund it. Right, you can course, see the, yeah. the field is, you know, not making progress. Um, but I think there's actually a worse thing that string theory showed, which in fact kind of makes the theoretical prospects like even more, more bleak, actually. Yeah. Um, so people in the 90s discovered that the string theory probably predicts there are lots of different large-scale ways the universe could behave. Okay. So it's not even that string theory would like, one, one dream you might have is, okay, it's going to be really hard. But like eventually, you know, Einstein, future Einstein will like have the breakthrough. And they'll be like, wait, I think I understand it now. And they, they, they do the math, they write down their equations and they calculate the mass of the, the electron or something. Yeah. And they get the right answer. If that were to happen, we would, it doesn't matter that we couldn't test the experiment in other ways. If you could just predict the electron mass sure. yeah. just from like first principles, I think we'd be pretty we'd have like pretty confident that you're like probably right or something. I mean, obviously people are going to be skeptical or whatever, but you know, we have a lot of data about how the world works. Um, you could imagine this, like the, the persistent enough Einstein eventually just like cracking it. Sure. And there's something about just the sheer elegance or simplicity of a theory explaining like a number of different yeah. observations. But also just like, what's the chances you get the right electric right. mass? It's like, if your theory yeah. was wrong, it's just like extremely unlikely. Yeah. So if you can get even just like a few facts about the world, right. Um, then we'd be pretty confident the theory is correct. Okay. So this is like one reason why you might think not all is lost. You don't have to discover new stuff to, to think you have the right theory. You just have to explain all the old stuff in a way that's consistent. Yeah. I, I guess people might criticize you, like maybe there's a second theory that predicts exactly the same things. But yeah. if you're starting to talk about like the, the mass of the electron, it seems unlikely. Yeah. The problem was in the 90s, people realized that there's no reason that your fundamental theory has to actually predict the electron mass. Mm -hmm. It could predict many different electron masses. Um, okay. Can, can you say more about <laughs> Yeah, so the, so the way string theory works, or at least the way we think that string theory would produce the universe if string theory is correct, mm -hmm. uh, is that it actually has extra dimensions that fold up in complicated ways. Mm -hmm. uh, one analogy I think you might be good to use is to think about protein folding. Mm -hmm. So we know like the theory of how proteins behave. I mean, we know there are like certain uh, set of amino acids and there's certain intermolecular forces. In principle, if you were like a super computer and you knew quantum mechanics, you could like predict how this actually works. Yeah. In practice, it is like impossible to predict how a protein will fold from first principles. Mm -hmm. It'll fold in some extremely convoluted way. And how a protein behaves, like what it sticks to, what reactions it catalyzes, like whether it will kill you or whether it will like help, um, help you fight a disease will depend on exactly how it folds. Mm -hmm. um, in string theory, the way the universe behaves at big distances will depend on how all these extra dimensions fold. And like with protein folding, there are just gazillions of ways. I mean, gazillions mm. is a technical term here. You know, of course. Yeah. It's like 10 One more than a gajillion. <laughs> when people try to estimate the number of ways the strings could fold, I mean, no one has a good way of, of estimating. Like, no one has a good way of, like, getting a precise number because you don't fully understand things. But crude estimates are, like, 10 to the 1,000 kind of number of things. If you, for reference, there are probably about 10 to the 80-ish nucleons, like, 10 to the 80 particles in the universe, I think. If I've got my numbers right, maybe it's 10 to the 60. In any case there are way more possible foldings of the string mm -hmm. than there are like atoms in the universe. And so maybe the problem is just like completely fucked. Um, and to spell that out, suppose something like string mm -hmm. theory 
true or like you know yeah, specific yeah. articulation of it um in that world we would still be confronted with this problem that there are like zillions of ways that it actually shakes out into worlds in yeah. which things can live um and it's also going to be pretty much intractable to figure out what those different it, configurations yeah. are yeah. maybe there's like many possible different configurations and so you're like kind of left with this stubborn gap of explaining like this world if explaining is even the right word there it's just not gonna like drop out as it's really elegant like this world is the only solution to this really elegant yeah and this is an interesting point the theory is only the theoretical approach is only going to work if there basically is a unique universe right mm -hmm. if they're like actually just like many consistent laws of physics and by theoretical approach you mean come up with elegant theory that theory predicts the like parameters we actually see in this world problem yeah. solved yeah there's like no guarantee that there is like a unique theory that predicts everything we see mm -hmm. right yeah so like maybe the theory i guess is what you're saying could be ton of things exist, <laughs> including this yeah. one. And like string theory does have this property. It just generates, if, if we understand it correctly, and I should caveat this with, we don't understand string theory as well as we'd like to. And also string theory may well not be correct, mm -hmm. but I think it's like pretty plausible that even if string theory is, is wrong, the theories that are correct will have a similar properties, which is that they actually have many different low energy ways that the universe can behave. And so even if you could by like pure reason alone derive the final theory, uh, it wouldn't actually tell you anything about our universe. I see, because you just yeah. like can't really know which one you're in. It's like if you wake up in a cubicle and you know you're like you've derived that you're in one of like a thousand cubicles and they have different things on the like on the outside. You just like still can't know what's on the outside, like even if you're just omniscient. I mean, another way to put it is like imagine if 500 years ago we were trying to like predict the number and size of the the planets in the solar system. Mm -hmm. We're like, well, we're in the. We know that you know the sun's the center of the universe. Yeah. Or maybe you know, maybe we're like post uh, post Copernicus. You know, the sun's the center of the universe. Clearly, you know, there must be deep mathematical reasons. Like the planets are the right size and shape they are, yeah. and like the moon is the size it is, and whatever. And uh, we have a better theoretical understanding of how the solar system evolved now than we did 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. But we also know that like trying to trying to predict from first principles the mass of the Earth. Is just stupid. Like th there is actually no good explanation yeah. for the Earth, which is size. fine. Like these, there are just indexical factors. Yeah, like, exactly. Where we are, right? So, um, like you say, it would be naive to hope that we can just like come up with some elegant formulas that tell us that the like electron masses, the Mars plot. should exist yeah. or whatever, right? Like you can imagine Mars not existing, but maybe this applies much more generally to like more like fundamental parameters that we observe which is like the world we find ourselves in exactly there's no reason that the electron mass was like preordained by by god from like on high it could well be just accidental we see it, it is the way it is mm -hmm. i think this this makes me a lot more pessimistic about the uh, theoretical approach yeah. actually conquering the problem at least in a way that would then end up with like some coherent theory of physics that we are fairly confident is, is correct it's, if string theory is correct, then it's like plausible we've kind of like managed to, to jump the chasm to some extent. Mm -hmm. Although we just don't know if string theory is correct. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> there is a sense in which the correct explanation for why like electrons are this massive is just like they are. <laughs> or like there are, there are many different configurations and we find ourselves in this one. <laughs>
Yeah, I definitely think that, I mean, there's like, to the idea that like we should privilege those theories of particular electron mass, I just have like a, I guess like a pragmatic and a philosophical objection. The pragmatic one is just like, okay, we'll find me those theories. Like no, no one has found those. Um, I would agree if we found a theory that did this, I'd be amazed, but no one has found one. No one has a pathway to finding one. They probably don't exist. And the philosophical objection is obviously we don't get to choose the universe we live in. Yeah, right, right. I mean, we, just, we just don't. I, mean, I think there's a famous quote from Bohr, I think it is. So Einstein liked to say, you know, God does not play dice. Yeah. This was, in fact, his problem with quantum mechanics. Right. He didn't like the fact it wasn't deterministic. Ironically, a lot of physicists now think that quantum mechanics is, in fact, deterministic. Yeah. That's a whole other story about many worlds. Uh, but in any case, you know, uh, Einstein's strong theoretical dislike of, of this feature. And so I think like, you know, Bohr was sufficiently annoyed at him to, to tell him, you know, Einstein stopped telling God what to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Okay, let's talk about something that feels pretty related, which is, you know, I often hear that there are lots of different constants that can apparently take many values. Well, at least in this, this belief about string theory would, would think that they could take many values. Got it, okay. And uh, whatever these constants are, it just so happens that they take um, some very precise range of values that is um, consistent with anything interesting, including complex life. Um, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, so I think I'm maybe taking a step back. Um, I think it's it's interesting to look at like what two two big problems that have driven theoretical program like theoretical work in, in physics over the last half century. I'm not really sure this is like yeah. gonna tie in perfectly with the question, but I think this is like actually where I want to get to or something. Um so these phenomenologists that were working on different versions of the standard model, they were motivated by this problem called the hierarchy problem. This problem is that the Higgs mass is is weird. Uh it's really small in like a kind of technical way. If you if you believe the standard model and you were very naive about how quantum gravity should work, you should think that the Higgs mass is about the same as the mass of quantum gravity stuff. The Higgs, like the Planck mass is the, the term we use for this. Uh, and that is about 10 to the 18 times heavier than the Higgs mass we actually see. Um, it's a bit, bit weird. Um, of course, we didn't really understand how quite these processes work, but it's like a pretty generic property that it should be really heavy. And so people were trying to find different theories where the Higgs mass was protected in some way. It's like some, some mechanism would, would actually stop it from always generically becoming the mass of, of the Planck scale. Uh, and so people came up with these, these ideas like supersymmetry uh, and technicolor and various kind of other explanations. Um, there was another problem in, in cosmology, which was the cosmological constant problem. So... Originally, the problem was explaining why is the cosmological constant really zero? So I said like Einstein had this cosmological constant. He introduced it and was like, uh, I want to introduce it to make the universe stationary. Universe yeah. turns out isn't stationary, doesn't work. So he, he abandoned it. Uh, and so people kind of assumed that there was no cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. Now, in classical general relativity, that's fine. In quantum field theory, in, in like when we take quantum mechanics into the mixture, it turns out the cosmological constant should be something you could compute mm -hmm. again it will depend on the properties of quantum gravity so uh, confusing mm -hmm. but probably if any kind of sensible theory of quantum gravity would imply it has some non-zero value some some value mm -hmm. um and so people were confused and they thought maybe there's some some theoretical explanation that it's that it doesn't exist mm -hmm. now in the 1980s there was in fact 
exactly one person who predicted. Well, maybe my history is a bit cartoonish, but there was at least one, only one major kind of prediction that the cosmological constant wasn't zero. And that this is a famous argument by Weinberg, also like a, a very, very important physicist who is in fact one of the discoverers of the standard model. And he argued that, uh, let's say that the cosmological constant was in fact real and it was big, mm -hmm. what would happen? Well, it turns out the universe would rip itself apart in seconds. Um, just not very compatible with a large universe. And then he reasoned, well, well clearly in those universes, um, we wouldn't exist. You know, the second is just like not long enough to, to do the kind of complicated physics required to work out that a cosmological constant yeah. is present. What if we assume that that actually lots of universes exist with different cosmological constants and only the ones we, uh, only the ones compatible that will last long enough to actually have like complex star formation and, uh, you know, complex observers exist. Let's assume only those ones are the ones that we could see. Well, then you find that actually the cosmological constant is not zero. It's just going to be small. Uh, in fact, he predicted it to be about like a given like a specific value and um, roughly. I mean, we don't know the distribution of different cosmological constants, but you know, if you assume that in fact most of the time it's really big, then if we happen to be in just the universe that's able to support life, it's probably going to be about as big as it could be while still supporting life. Why? Why should I think that? Well, if you think generically, a value is around one. But you can only observe it if the value is close to zero. Okay, so there's then, like then you should think there's like a bias towards having it as big as it could be. I see, right. So there's some general reason why I should expect it to be big and non-zero. Yeah. yeah, big and positive, for instance. If you like it would like equally like to be big and positive and big and negative, then maybe you'd think you you might not be so sure. Yeah. But um in this case, I think there was reason to think it would be about as big as it should be. It, the the reasoning's all very like kind of fuzzy because we don't know how quantum gravity works. We don't know yeah. even if there are other universes, if there were like what the distribution would be. Mm -hmm. But in any case, this was this was a paper in the 1980s that said, look, maybe there is no reason that the cosmological constant is zero. There's no like magical mathematical explanation. Mm -hmm. what, what if it's just anthropic bias? Well, then it'll be really small. Mm -hmm. What happened? Well, in the 90s, we discovered there was in fact a, cosmolog a cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. It was in fact about the size that Weinberg predicted. Uh -huh. um, so Weinberg was right. And it also basically killed like any reasonable way to theoretically explain why it was zero. Because mm. explaining why something is exactly mathematically zero, it's, it's hard, but you could like- sure, You can imagine it. You, you can imagine it. Yeah, there's something special about zero. It's got like a certain, certain rhyme to it. Yeah. The true cosmological constant when put in natural units, like the units you would use if playing around with quantum gravity is 10 to the minus 120 Whoa. roughly. So it's, it's not zero. Uh -huh. It's pretty close to zero, but it's really hard to think of why like your explanation for why it is not zero, but really close to zero holds. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are like, it's, it's, you know, it's not completely impossible to imagine maybe someone might find an explanation, although there's been a lot of effort known as I think yeah. found any credible explanation for it being so small. Yes. Yeah. And just to be clear on this anthropic explanation of the mm -hmm. cosmological constant. So one version of this might be, um, the cosmological constant takes one value. If it were higher, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. So it must be lower. But it sounds to me like that explanation kind of leaves something to be desired, which is like, I don't know, why are we speaking in the first place? Yeah, what's the chances of the one universe that exists? Right. Is part, yeah. like, it seems more natural to think actually there's just like a lot of Right, so that's, I guess, the second the, version. We're the we're just the lucky ones. Yeah, so like it does or did in fact take many, many values. Mm -hmm. 
um, that is less surprising that some people are wondering what why it takes such a finely tuned value because there will be such people <laughs> if it took many values. Yeah. So that's like the anthropic in principle in a nutshell. And I think basically the same logic also applies to the Higgs mass. The thing that people spent so much time trying to, trying to fix up. Uh, and the standard model basically kills any explanation of the Higgs mass that would make it protected in the ways they wanted. Mm -hmm. So the standard model has experimentally been like verified reasonably thoroughly now. Um, but there's also just this anthropic explanation for the Higgs mass. What if the Higgs mass was way bigger? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out every particle in the standard model has a mass that is determined by the Higgs mass. Mm -hmm. So if the Higgs mass was a 10 to the 18 times heavier, all of the other particles would be 10 to the 18 times heavier. Mm -hmm. If you were 10 to the 18 times heavier, you would not function as, a, as an individual podcasting me. You'd, you'd collapse yeah. into a black hole. Now, we actually just kind of have a, an explanation for why we see an unusual Higgs mass. And it's a very unsatisfying one. Because it says that there's no good reason that there's a Higgs mass the way it is. At least no reason that has other implications for the for the reality we see. Yeah, I see. It just happens to be that mass because that's the only one that would have supported life. Or at least yeah. it's only a limited number of them would support life. Maybe other values, like if it was 150 Jeb rather than 125 Jeb or something, maybe that would be fine. Yeah. But the reason it's unusually small is not because there are some interesting new physics making it unusually small. Yeah. It's because we just have to live in a universe where it's really unusually small. Yeah. And you say that's not satisfying in a sense. I wonder if some story about why it has to be that way would also be unsatisfying in a different sense, which is something like, hang on, why did it, of all the ways it could have necessarily turned out, why did it necessarily turn out in the way which supports life? It feels like there's still something to be explained, which you haven't gotten rid of, if it just like, you go the other route. I agree. In fact, I mean, I can, I think like intuitively people, I don't know, I maybe, maybe once I found this explanation unsatisfying, I think I've reached like kind of Zen equilibrium with like, right. I, I think it is more satisfying. The environmental explanation, like the anthropic explanation yeah, right. is in fact, in this sense, it's more, more satisfying because yeah. it just seems incredibly implausible that the, you know, the, the laws of logic, like not even God necessarily could contrive this, like mathematical logic itself contrives the, the Higgs mass to be um, the perfect value. It does seem kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. It does seem a lot more suspiciously like actually there are lots of values you could take, but mm. supporting complex life is like a very, seems like a very tricky thing. Yeah. And I guess we were talking earlier about some kind of bias towards simplicity or parsimony or elegance being a useful tool for figuring out what's going on. I wonder if there's a way you can kind of misconstrue that as, hey, we should have a bias towards there being like less stuff or something. I think this is this is part of what people like. I think this gets bandied around a lot, and I'm not really sure how to actually parcel out mm -hmm. simplicity or parsimony. Yeah. Like in some sense, is a is a theory of of uh, how planets work that just is a list of the planets in our solar system. Is that like a simpler explanation than? than a theory that postulates, in fact, there are many solar systems out there, yeah, right. each of which have like very different planet shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some sense, like the first theory is much simpler in terms of the amount of stuff. Mm -hmm. In some sense, it's more complicated because actually to describe a collection of different kinds of solar systems mm -hmm. might be fairly simple. Like a bit like, you know, describing a process of flipping queens a hundred times. Sometimes that's like a lot more simple than like any given run of a hundred heads or tails I hand you. Yeah, right. Right. Likewise, it's not clear to me that we should really be thinking of a 
of a multiverse containing many different kinds of universes, but generated in a very simple way. Like if, if string theory is correct, and of course we don't even understand how string theory works. So like if our understanding of string theory is like totally, is like at all correct, then it might be there's a fairly simple underlying theory that generates lots of different low level, like low energy physics, like a lot of different kind of worlds with different Higgs masses. But that process might be pretty simple. On the other hand, if we had a theory that just predicted or put in by hand the masses of like the particles we see, it might contain less stuff in some ways, but it's not clear it's simpler. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know if, maybe we'll cut this. Something that runs through my head is like, you can imagine having a, like a generator rule just for generating a lot of stuff, plus like your coordinates, this is like where you live. Mm. So for instance, you know, can very like elegantly describe how to draw a Mandelbrot set. And then I can like tell you to zoom in this amount and go to these exact coordinates. Mm. And then you have this like, you can draw an image, which um, if you were just to compress the like raw image, it would take a lot more information than like rule for generating the whole thing, plus your coordinates. I don't really know where that goes, but it's like- It does, it does seem analogies. like, I agree with this though. Like obviously in a theory that is an ensemble theory that you need to include like the indexical information. And so you can't cheat by just saying, well, at least maybe it feels like it should be cheating if you said my theory is just everything that logically could exist does exist. Yeah. And I'm there. I mean, I don't know. I'm like kind of sympathetic to like a very kind of broad. I don't even know what it means for anything to exist. So like maybe this is fine. <laughs> but um, yeah, so one claim is like maybe the string theory ensemble is in fact like a lot simpler. And also the indexical information is actually not so bad. Mm -hmm. It might still be like very bad from a like testing the theory standpoint. But, you know, uh, maybe it's still like a lot simpler in, in totality than your one true theory that somehow magically has these numbers fall out. Yeah. And I definitely agree with this other suspicious fact. It would be really weird if like the one true theory <laughs> yeah. happened to support complex life. Yeah, that seems right. Anything nearby just doesn't. It, yeah, like faced with, I guess, a choice between living a ton of stuff yeah. <laughs> and then some of that stuff supports life. And maybe the, the reason there's like a ton of stuff is like pretty simple, even if it's kind of unsatisfying. There's loads of redundant stuff. Yeah. That feels kind of, in terms of vague impressions, like more plausible than, hey, things necessarily had to turn out one way. And it turns out that way supports complex life in the like zillions of other ways in which um, it wouldn't have supported life. That's it, deal with it. Right. And for what it's worth, we don't exactly live in a universe where like every surface is teeming with life or whatever. It looks looks pretty dead and boring out there. Mm. It's, you know, it does seem pretty hard to get life. I mean. Yeah. And the conclusion, I guess, is if all this, you know, shakes out, there probably is a lot of stuff. Yeah. Without life. I mean, even if we ignore the, uh, even if we ignore all these questions about like multiverses or things like this, yeah. the universe that we can see is just stupidly large. Yeah. Like it's just mind-bogglingly stupidly full of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as we can tell, at least, very, very empty of, of things that would use that stuff, you know? Yeah. I came across this kind of neat-ish idea recently, which is, um, suppose you, uh, like, pick some random point on a line mm. and you can ask a question, which is like, how likely are you to be very close to the either edge of the line? Let's say within, you know, 5% or something. And then do the same thing when you pick a random point on a square and then a point within a cube and so on. And like when you um, increase the dimensions, you just become increasingly more likely to be very close 
to an edge or a face or whatever the word is. Um, I guess one way to think about it is like in each of the dimensions, you could be close to the face. And so like if you have like a, a million faces, like yeah. almost certainly one of them, you're like one in a millionth close to that, that face, right? Like, yeah. And if something like that is going on in the actual world, then we should expect ourselves to be um, very near to the threshold of life not being possible. So obviously life is possible. Yeah, it's an interesting question about the shape of the space of life. Yeah. It's not clear to me. This is plausible though, especially if um, the conditions for life are very are very different from like the generic world's condition, which may well end up being everything contracts into a black hole or explodes in a Planck second or some other equally very hostile condition. Um, but yeah, it's not clear to me whether we should expect, we do appear to be in a universe that's pretty empty, which does seem to imply we're in a universe that's like not super fond of life. We could obviously be wrong about that for various reasons. And yeah. maybe maybe it's just impossible to have it. Maybe, maybe the universe is actually like as good as you can get for life. I don't know. Yeah. It'd be interesting to think whether you could make universes that were slightly better than ours for life by like tinkering the parameters. Yeah, it's like yeah, an yeah. anti-anthropic argument. Yeah, like, right. Um, things just like just hang together, guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> I also have like a fun crackpot like thing about um, like if you expect, let's say that you, you expect to be more likely to be in a universe that's full of life, right? Because that's like... Yeah, of course. But of course, we're going to like settle the entire universe. We're going to like simulate everything. Mm -hmm. So really, actually, universes that are very, have almost no life actually are about as good as universes that are full of life at actually being full of life. As soon as the first <laughs> life form exists, it just like spreads throughout yeah. the galaxy and just creates simulations of its own universe. And so there's like yeah. this like step change between the universes <laughs> that have like basically one life form per like cosmic horizon. All right, let's slightly switch topics. Not exactly sure what the appropriate segue is, but it's something like this. Um, despite there being some you know, trouble on the horizon for like really fundamental physics, we did still learn a few things um, about what might happen in the future, cosmologically speaking in particular. Um, and this might be, you know, like kind of an interesting or even relevant conversation if we're thinking about uh, futures for humanity if we survive um, over long time scales. So what does the calendar look like when we project forwards over millions of years and then further? So there's a great book on this actually from the late 90s um, called The Five Ages of the Universe by, by Fred Adams. And in fact, there's also a, a technical paper he wrote, uh, which I'd highly recommend for people who are, uh, actually have some background in physics and want to like get the nitty gritty details. Um, and as we've already noted, there haven't really been revolutionary changes in the in the last 20, 23 years or whatever in physics. <laughs> so a little bit like holds up quite quite well. I mean, there are a few things we know now that um, are a little different to to what was said there. Um, but overall, like it's it's pretty good. Um, they describe the five ages of the universe as such. Um, first, we have a primordial era before the first stars. Um, in fact, if you look at what what's going on, this is like there are a lot of different kind of steps to happen before stars form. You have to have the formation of all these subatomic particles and as things cool, they will collect into atoms and the atoms then will, will form larger and larger structures. Um, but okay, so that was kind of their primordial era, the first era. The second one they called the Stellaris era, the era of stars, um, which is the era we're in now. So, you know, you've got three more eras nice. of future left. Stelliferous, you are here. Um, Stelliferous, yes. So the universe is now about uh, 13.8 billion years old. It will probably contain stars uh, actually for, for about another 100 trillion years or so. Uh, it'll look very different because most of the stars that exist today are like 
so there's the bigger the star, the quicker it lives. Um, as long as the yellow dwarf star, um, it has survived about uh, 4.6 billion years so far. It probably has about another four and a half, five billion years in it to go. Um, other stars that are similar size to the sun will, will last a similar time period. The stars that will last the longest are even smaller than the sun. The sun's actually a pretty small star in the scheme of things. But the red dwarfs, um, they will last for trillions of years, up to like 100 trillion years. And the time at which the last red dwarfs will form out of the, the gas clouds now in a galaxy will also be roughly in 100 trillion years. Okay. So roughly in 100 trillion years time, you'll have but like the last red dwarfs kind of thriving and dying. And do we have a sense of of all the stars that will form, how many have formed already? That's a good question. I, my guess is that the sun... Like, are we unusually early or late? No, I, th I think you might naively think we're unusually early because if there's 100 trillion years to go, well, then, right. you know, it's a bit early. But if you actually look at the number of star formation, I think the sun is actually about in the 80th percentile. Don't, I'm not sure for certain, but the sun is actually like a relatively young star. Mm, yeah. um, so there'll be a long, long tail of, of star formation, but at a very low, an increasingly low um, rate. Yeah. It'll never truly be like star formation ends now or something, but it's like some exponential process where by the time you're talking about like a quadrillion years into the future, there'll be no, no more star formation. And that's because stars form and gas clouds contract. Uh, and eventually, like, there'll be not enough density of, of uh, interstellar gas to form these things. Is that because of the expansion of space or because we just run out of gas because it all turns into stars? I think it mostly just actually, it, we, so space is expanding, but if you look at a galaxy that's gravitationally bound, uh, the force of gravity is strong enough uh, that the space won't expand there. So the galaxies will get further apart, uh, but it won't be the case that the galaxies themselves will be ripped apart by, by these gravitational forces. Instead, it's that, in fact, you just have this gas is being used by by the stars and being used up in the formation of stars. And also, as objects travel through the galaxy, they'll like pick up gas. And so you just have this like slow running down. Also, some gas will escape into the void. Um, I'm not sure which of these processes is the dominant one, but yeah, finite amount of gas left. Nice, got it. Um, not just on Earth. <laughs> so, sorry, I should have paid more attention. <laughs> um, sounds like stars stop forming in the kind of trillions of years. Yeah, about the tens to hundreds frame. of trillions of years. Okay, which is also about how long the longest lived stars will, will last. Okay, so that was going to be my question, yeah. which is like, when do the last stars die? So, on a logarithmic scale, star formation and star death occurs about the same time. Okay, so. That is what they would call the end of the stellar furnace. Okay. Era. So this is like 10 to 100 era. trillion years from now. So a little, fair bit of time. Stars stop forming and roughly the kind of same time when, you know, in log time also begin to or die or in fact well, more yeah, or less so by the time that you've gotten to a trillion years into the future, basically I think all but the red dwarfs will have died. And yeah. my guess is that the last stars to form will also be relatively small red dwarfs. So probably you'll see that in about 10, 20 billion years, all the, the stars that are like bigger than red dwarfs will, will be basically gone. And then you'll have this like very long trickling down. So the galaxy becomes redder and dimmer mm -hmm. until about a hundred trillion years time, there's, there's nothing left. Okay. Of course, as you know, the universe is expanding. So in fact, there'll be interesting things before that point. So about a hundred billion years into the future, I think all other galaxies will be removed from our, well, 
taking a step back, in about 3 billion years, we'll collide with the Andromeda galaxy, which is the largest galaxy in our local cluster. Mm -hmm. And over time, all of the 30 or so galaxies in our local cluster will merge into some mega Milky Way Andromeda or whatever yeah. portmanteau you want to use yeah. to describe it. Um, I think around 100 billion years, time will have lost, like we won't be able to see any other galaxies. It'll just be our huge, horrendous, blobby mess. Okay. Um, and we'll also lose evidence of the cosmic microwave background. This is one of the main pieces of evidence we have for the Big Bang. Um, but eventually it gets redshifted, so it becomes cooler and cooler and cooler over time. And at some mm. point... And this is like, so I don't know, if an ambulance like drives past you and then starts driving away from you, you hear the pitch go down, kind of same deal with light... Kind of. A simpler way to think about it is just basically the temperature, like the, the wavelength of light just becomes longer. It's like literally being stretched. Mm, oh, right. Sorry, that is, that is different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so basically at some point it'll be impossible for future physicists, even with the perfect technology to ever detect it. Like there'll right. be less than one photon per. Let's get our act together. <laughs> yeah. We've got, to, um, we've got to really make sure we get all that light now. Nice. And the reason we can't, we won't be able to see galaxies is that for... Similar reasons that it's not visible light because of like a stretch or because they're receding faster than the speed of light. I don't actually think that is, I don't actually know if there's a distinction between the two when you actually look at what happens in practice. Because basically like you can see it now and then at some point the the last bit of light that you'll be seeing from it. So if you like look at, if you think about the light that's leaving the star, at some point in time, there's like the last photon as such that like reaches that from that galaxy that like reaches you and I think it de depends a bit on the geometry, so I need to think carefully. But I think what actually happens is like the last photons take longer and longer and longer and longer to reach you. And from your standpoint, that means the wavelength is stretched longer and longer and longer until eventually they're so redshifted that you basically no photon is reaching you. Mm. And eventually there is a point where it just they literally can't reach us. Yeah, there's like yeah. You know, no photon, like a photon every trillion years or something. And at that point, got it. Yeah. And conversely, and I guess this is earlier, there's a point where we will be able to ourselves reach those galaxies, because if we travel at the speed of light, we still wouldn't reach them. Yeah. They'll, be, they'll be receding faster. Yeah, so there's, I think, stars we can see but never reach. Mm -hmm. It depends on the geometry, but I think because acceleration is expanding, this is the case. Um, so that's in the, the near future. So this is the Stelliferous era. Okay. No more stars after 100 trillion years. So you might ask, okay, what, what's left? Mm -hmm. Well, when stars die, they form a few different things. Our sun and red dwarfs, which, which is smaller than our sun, will form what are called white dwarfs. Um, so these are super dense. Uh, I think they're only on a scale of like, I'd have to actually check the, the size, but these are like super dense remnants. Um, no more fusion is happening. So they're supported entirely by the fact that two electrons mm. cannot be in the same quantum mechanical state. This is called electron degeneracy. If your star is a bit bigger, it'll collapse instead into what's called a neutron star. So it's so much gravitational force that the protons and electrons actually collide with each other to form neutrons. And now the neutron degeneracy pressure holds it up. Mm -hmm. um, if your star is big enough, it turns out that nothing can, can counteract the force of gravity. Mm -hmm. And so you get a black hole. Okay. So that is what will remain of the stars. Uh, and so they call this era the degenerate era because okay. only degenerate objects are, are left. And those objects are black holes, white dwarfs, and neutron stars, yeah. roughly speaking. There will also be the remains of planets, things that are too small to ever uh, have undergone fusion in the first place. 
and you know have asteroids you'll have things called brown dwarfs which are stars that are well brown dwarf is kind of like the intermediate category between a red dwarf and a and a planet okay. um so there'll be these like kind of small objects that have managed to survive somehow um and so this is you know it's kind of less lively than it is today and the generate era what kind of time scale are we talking about so it starts at 100 trillion years, roughly, into the future. By the time you're getting into a quadrillion years, you'll have seen basically that all solar systems will have been disrupted long ago. Mm-hmm. It'll be um, collections of planets and these degenerate stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time that you get to 10 to 100 quintillion years into the future, so like 10 to the 20 years, mm-hmm. um, you'll have reached the point in which most of the galaxy's uh, degenerate objects will either have been flung out into space or will have collided with the central black hole. So now you're in a really lonely, boring universe. Where when you say flung out into space, isn't everything already in space? So the galaxy is full of stars that are roughly gravitationally bound. Mm-hmm. So over short timescales, we would expect it kind of acts like a gas. Um, but and, and most stars don't have enough energy to fly out into space because they're gravitationally bound by everything else. But what can happen is that um, if... Uh, if gravitationally gravitational objects move quickly enough with each other, they can in fact gain enough energy to have more energy than the escape velocity for like the group of stars as a whole. This is a bit like evaporative cooling. Like if you have water, most of the atoms most of the time don't have enough energy to escape the water into the atmosphere. But occasionally, by random chance, as they all bounce around with each other, one uh, molecule of water near the surface of the water will have enough energy that it can actually fly off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can actually fly off mm-hmm. uh, into the air. And once it flies off, it's never coming back, right? That, that's, that's lost. Yeah. So likewise, you can think of a, a galaxy as like a puddle of, of uh, stars. So like the stars are like the molecules here. Most of the time, they don't have anywhere near enough energy to just like leave. But occasionally, through like some lucky interactions, one of them will be going quite fast. Yeah. And if it doesn't hit any, you know, anything else on the way out of the galaxy, it'll leave with enough energy. To, to fling out. So this is like gravitational okay. evaporation. And apologies for mic noise. Damon is gesturing wildly to explain this. <laughs> yeah, it's my Italian heritage. It's un- unavoidable. Um, so eventually this process will lead to basically the stars either all being flung out of the galaxy or the remaining ones having collided and uh, being sucked into the central black hole that that galaxy has. And the, the various black holes uh, will, will form the super duper black hole. I think I think basically like about ninety percent of objects, roughly or something like this, will be flung out into space, okay. and the remaining the remaining like ten percent or so will be will be in this, this super black hole. Okay, where are we up to now? So now time for the twenty years. Okay, things future. are getting started finally. Yeah, so uh, I hope you planned for for your retirement fund yeah. for the future. <laughs> it's really not so much to do. Now we get uh, super duper far. What happens next? Mm-hmm. Well. We don't quite know because we don't know what happens at long timescales to, to protons. Mm-hmm. So in the standard model, the proton is apparently stable, mm-hmm. but it actually seems very likely that the additional physics beyond the standard model will cause the proton to decay. In fact, this is like a generic prediction of beyond the standard model physics. It takes a lot of effort to contrive something that doesn't have this property. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how fast this will be. We have some experimental evidence that that we can just get a bunch of stuff and wait to see if protons decay. Uh, And I think that means, I think we've been able to show that the lifetime is 
less is, is greater than 10 to the 36 years. We also have kind of rough guesses that the lifetime should be about 10 to the 40, 10 to the 42 years. Um, so let's say for, for simplicity's sake, it's about 10 to the 40 years. So if you've got your neutron star, this means that in about 10 to the 40 years, half of the, the neutrons will have decayed away. So be half the size. What do they decay into? So in the standard, so, so the, a proton would decay into a positron a, and a, an electron neutrino, I believe. Okay. Yeah, it's basically in the standard model, the number of nucleons, like the number of protons plus neutrons is, is always conserved. But beyond the standard model physics allows interactions that break this. Mm -hmm. um, so now if this proton decays, eventually all of your degenerate objects will decay away with the protons. So your white dwarfs, your neutron stars, they'll all disappear. Now you think, okay, so 10 to the 40 years, let's say that's the half-life of your proton or neutron or whatever. This means in 10 to the 40 years, all your white dwarfs and neutron stars will be half the size. Mm -hmm. uh, now in 10 to the 41 years, there'll be two to the minus 10 uh, nucleons left, which means one in a thousand nucleons will be left. So now are a thousandth of the size. So at this point, uh, you know, your white dwarves and neutron stars will probably no longer be degenerate objects. They'll have like decayed so much that they'll like yeah. actually look more like diffuse kind of brown dwarf things. No longer is the degeneracy pressure keeping them together. Yeah. Um, now what happens when you have 10 to the 42 years into the future? Well, now there's two to the minus 100 nucleons left. Or like two to the minus 100 as a proportion of the original amount, right? Yeah. Rather than so now for every nucleon that exists now, only 10 to the minus 30 will be left. Yeah. So what about 10 to the 43 years? Well, so now we, so now by 10 to the 43 years, we have two to the minus a thousandth of the number of nucleons left. Mm -hmm. So for every nucleon that we have currently, only one in 10 to the minus 300 nucleons will be left. Mm -hmm. Now, I said earlier, I think there's about 10 to the 80 nucleons in the universe, something like that. In any case, there's less, much less than 10 to the 300. Yeah. So by 10 to the 43 years time, that's it. Anything made of nucleons, any stars, any planets, any anything, or well, any degenerate remains left, they're all gone. Okay. So you might ask what's left now. What's well, left now? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, so the next era they said is they called uh, the black hole era. So now we're talking 10 to the 43 years is the start. Uh, and the only thing left are black holes. But it turns out black holes themselves are not forever. Uh, mm -hmm. This, in fact, is one of the, the major contributions that, that Stephen Hawking made to physics. Uh, he discovered that black holes evaporate, but they evaporate very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and the bigger the black hole, the slower it is to evaporate. So by the time... The universe is 10 to the 110 years old. Then we'll see the last of the supermassive black holes finally disappear. And then there'll be nothing but, but the occasional photon and electron and positron uh -huh. and neutrino. Yeah, pretty barren. Left. Yes. Floating in the void. And then that forever and ever. Theta black roll credits, is that? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's like a like a nothingness stamping on... <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of nothing forever. And I guess, I know this is maybe like not even a meaningful question or something, but presumably there's just no point where like, <laughs> you know, God turns the lights off and, and that's it. Like things keep going, but things just 
nothing interesting is happening anymore like, indefinitely. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because now this is the this is the story based off the physics. We kind of know so far, or like fudging a bit with the yeah. the nucleon decay that we we think is probably there. Now, there's a couple ways that this could this could actually be wrong. Um, the most straightforward thing is that what's called false vacuum decay. We don't know if the universe is stable. Uh, it could instead be metastable. That might sound a bit abstract. The way to imagine it is um, supercooled water. I, I don't know if you've seen these videos of people like pouring. It turns um, into ice when you pour yeah. it. Yeah. So what's going on here is that if you cool water below zero degrees Celsius, it doesn't freeze immediately. Mm. Um, well, what it needs is some like nucleation sites to freeze. Um, they can need something to like latch onto to start forming the crystal in the first place. So if you're very careful, you can cool water below zero degrees. Mm -hmm. And if you keep it very still and you have no, no impurities in the water, it won't freeze immediately. Mm -hmm. But if you tap it or whack it, suddenly it freezes. Actually, the, the carbon dioxide in your fizzy drink is, is a similar thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much carbon dioxide in, in carbonated beverages that in fact, it is more energetically favorable for it to turn into a gas. Mm -hmm. But to form bubbles requires nucleation sites. Uh, and usually those are fairly rare in your soft drink, often like the side of your can will be the thing providing the, the places. Yeah. If you shake it really hard, you actually create a, t a lot of tiny air bubbles in the soft drink. And then when you open it, it's those tiny air bubbles that, in, that then lead to the carbon dioxide actually escaping from the beverage into those tiny air bubbles, inflating them. Mm -hmm. And that's why you get this huge, uh, huge uh, explosion of fizziness. Okay. And afterwards the drink is flat because you've gotten rid of basically all the carbon dioxide. Yeah. And maybe the universe is some kind it's of like a fizzy drink, fizzy you know, drink, like a, a diet coke or a right. Pepsi. In the following uh, way, fun. In the following way. Well, oh, you want to? <laughs> there, there is no analogy. Oh, okay, <laughs> I thought it was clear. No, um, so if there are other ways the strings and string theory could be folded, for instance, or if there are other other possible low energy rules of physics that are possible, yeah, it is plausible these are in fact more stable than our own universe. If this is true, then it may still take a very, very, very long time for our universe to tunnel, quantum tunneling is the, I guess, like the fancy term or whatever, um, from the current state it is in to, the, to a lower energy state. Uh, in the process, this bubble of true vacua, as it's called, or it could be another false vacua, but a more stable false vacua, or vacuum, I should say. Um, will expand at the speed of light, killing everyone as it, uh, as it expands. Another thing to worry about. Yeah. So interestingly enough, if you believe the standard model and you extrapolate it up to high energies, it actually looks like it is not the stable vacuum. In fact, the standard model seems to imply that the Higgs, uh, the Higgs mass, the Higgs BEV is the technical thing. The, the, the value of the Higgs field, in fact, would have lower energy if it had like, some stupidly big value. But not stupidly, stupidly big. Like stupidly big, um, but not so big that quantum gravity effects should should dominate. Okay, what what's the upshot? <laughs> the upshot is you can calculate the lifetime of the standard model if you believe the standard model holds up to the quantum gravity scale, and it turns out to be roughly there's a there's a big uncertainty because it actually depends a lot on the Higgs mass, which is not being nailed, and the top quark mass for some reason, but. Um, with their current uncertainties, it's something like 10 to the 120 plus or minus. And this like, is the extremely rough guess for something like false vacuum decay when you get this transition to a more stable 
Yeah, it's just two interesting things. There's like this theoretical prejudice that we have from string theory kind of like things that like the universe might be unstable. Mm -hmm. Then there's this like, actually the standard model in fact has this property already. So like, even if we don't believe any of that string theory nonsense, if we believe the string, if we believe that the standard model holds to high energies, then it still predicts this. Mm -hmm. Of course, we can't experimentally test the, the standard model at these energies. Mm -hmm. So it could be that some other thing along the way, like, you know, actually means that it's no longer unstable and we're wrong about this. Mm -hmm. But it seems plausible that we can extrapolate here. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the universe's half-life is about 10 to the 120 years plus or minus, like some pretty large error bars, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can rule out to about two sigma that the universe is stable with current measurements of the Higgs mass and the top quark mass, which is what matters. We can rule out as in? As in 98% uh, of the parameter space yeah. is unstable. I see. A couple percent is still within like the there's like some plot you can do and if you're on like some side of the line the universe is metastable mm -hmm. if you're on the other side it is just stable mm -hmm. and it appears like our best guess is that we're in the metastable region but we don't know the parameters for sure okay. so it's, it's still conceivable that like we could measure it very precisely and discover actually like we're in the stable region okay so when we're thinking about the like super long time scales then we might expect some kind of transition to the more Stable, stable vacuum. vacuum. And assuming fact, that we are in this metastable situation. Yeah. And in fact, this is a probabilistic thing. It could, could happen at any time. So Okay, you know. great. Great. Okay. Um, but it's probably very unlikely to, you know, the universe is already 13.8 billion years old. So probably not going to happen any anytime soon. Yeah. Got it. Plan for the future, pay your taxes. Just plan you for can never be too careful. <laughs> <laughs> Buy your like false vacuum umbrella now. Um, yes, this should be a good like insurance scam or something. <laughs> false well, vacuum I, insurance. I think I remember seeing some ads for there's a meteor shower, <laughs> like a 19th century kind of Victorian Britain ad for like the meteor umbrella you can get. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've been talking about a universe uh without people in it doing things and asking how uh it might evolve over very long time scales but maybe we might get to live over those very long time scales and do things in that um universe and i, mean, I, I keep fit for this reason you know, of course the, yeah. the, the dream of watching the last the pension part. schemes um <laughs> and so there is i guess some question here which is is there kind of anything we can say in very general terms, just based on our understanding of how the world works in physics terms, about either what we might be able to achieve over these timescales, or what we might just expect to be kind of more likely um, outcomes than others? My, my guess is, I mean, obviously, we don't have a full, fully fledged view of physics. Uh, like fundamental physics. But my guess is that humans won't be able to break things like the speed of light barrier and that, you know, the rules of physics as we see them at low energies will be the rules of physics that humans will be playing with in terms of like a physical scale. Like I, I don't think we'll be, I mean, we could arrest the uh, death of stars, for instance, by like saving gas clouds or by like collecting it in some ways. But in any case, um, yeah, my suspicion is that we won't be seeing like radically new technology that relies on different laws of physics in the way that say nuclear reactors relied on physics that was like radically new to compared to like what people had in the 1500s mm -hmm. um th th there was like a frontier in which like we understood and you made progress in like fundamental physics and i think that is 
um, that is probably now not now over. Mm-hmm. Similarly, like, I don't think we'll be able to to like prevent the decay of nucleons or things like this probably, or we'll invent perpetual motion machines or other ways that we could really uh, really like arrest a lot of these processes. On the other hand, I think maybe like the the thinking about like what physically the world would look like as human spread is maybe actually not quite accurate. I mean, we like to imagine like the the future will be like Star Wars. There'll be you know people on spaceships and like settling the galaxy and exploring and like pew 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 and right. I guess like lasers, the gun lasers that are slower than bullets. Right. I don't know. <laughs> like they're not always the most coherent picture, but probably in reality it'll be if we do spread throughout the stars and the universe. Or when I say we are descendants, I, I mean like it might be quite different from us, and there'll probably be digital minds rather than physical bodies. I mean, it's very expensive to send. A physical human mm-hmm. on any sort of distance um i mean we found this during the pandemic or whatever i found this with zoom you know it's easier to, to talk online than to yeah to physically fly <laughs> to somewhere. send someone to the moon i mean yeah. yeah fair enough um but just even getting to the nearest stars is, is many years of, of travel if you travel at the speed of light mm-hmm. um sure we could imagine sending you know spacecrafts with complicated life pods and things like this but if we do develop digital minds or artificial intelligence or things like this, I see no reason why we would bother to put all the effort to to like physically bring humans to other planets. Mm-hmm. Even if we wanted that, it seems more efficient to send things that could create humans on the other side if you wanted, rather than to transfer. Yeah, right. Like humans. sending the instructions rather than the finished product. Yeah, like send like the AI that not the trees. Create, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Create an AI that could could like you know produce the humans. Mm-hmm. But in any case, I think like we're unusually attached to being in human physical bodies because that's all we're used <laughs> to. But probably in thousands of years of time, if we do successfully have a civilization with artificial minds and digital minds and so on, it'll just seem very weird and parochial to them that we we ever thought that the, the world would be like humans on spaceships. A bit like a we would think it like naive if like a person in a thousand AD like was imagining our world today and was imagining it as like a world of like um kings and oh like that's probably not we still have kings and queens. I, I guess <laughs> yeah. i live in a monarchy yeah, it's not the best analogy but um you know yeah i see like with kind of you know knights with like rockets strapped to the horses yeah or exactly <laughs> rather than a we're using horses yeah or like if you imagine the you know people thought very strange things are like what the moon like if you read like early science fiction from the like, 19th century or whatever like it's just it's this weird combination of like futuristic things but they're very strongly victorian aesthetic like strongly victorian thinking about what social institutions would look like and what like also like the physical apparatus would look like yeah. um or, or even now today we look at star wars and like there's no computers and you know what i mean like yeah, sci-fi sure. from the 50s and 60s and 70s is just like already out of date mm-hmm. i think the digital minds people will just see us as like so stupid and parochial to think that like mm-hmm. we would would have physical bodies yeah, I mean, this is just like the most obvious thing in the world, right? But like trying to say accurate things or like plausible things about remotely long-run futures <laughs> is very hard to do, but probably the best shot at doing it is just try to say quite simple things from first principles rather than like extrapolating on kind of people's vibes about like what seems futuristic. <laughs> Yeah, I think the futuristic vibes often feel more like 1950. There's like a very like futuristic. Yeah, Xerox right. The kind of like retro to... futurism. Or something. Yeah, it's interesting that this genre exists as a whole, but it has a very distinctive vibe. But like in particular, the kind of if there's anything like first principles thinking going on here um, that points towards digital minds making up the like lion's share of, I guess, minds in the future. 
What what is the thinking there? Why expect that to be more ubiquitous? Well, so our I mean, we don't have like a full understanding of like what consciousness is or like what kind of experiences should or are desirable or whatever, but it's pretty plausible that the relevant thing is some sort of like computations the brain does. Uh, and it seems pretty clear that our brain is nowhere near the physical limits of efficiency for like what a what a computer could do. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were clever enough engineers, it's like very plausible we could we could engineer something that behaved like a human brain does, but was much much more efficient at running. A simple way to do this was just to make computers that are very powerful, and then to like scan and simulate the brain within the computer itself. But you could imagine like more complicated ways to do this or something. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we thought that the human brain was actually like quite efficient, um, the humans only live in, we only live in like a very, very limited range of, of temperatures and stuff. Mm-hmm. You can't take a human into space. It, you know, we can't survive without things that the earth gives us. So it seems much more efficient to, to create a computer and then a computer could be in space. You might have to shield it and things, but you can power it through like solar power or things like this. It seems very unlikely that, that this wouldn't be like a much more efficient use of resources than using the sun to to shine on a planet to like grow food for us to eat. Particularly because the sun, I mean, it's just most of the sunlight is just shining in, into the nothingness. Mm-hmm. It's lost. Um, so that this is, I think, a pretty strong reason to think that like the most like it's far more efficient if you want to create lots of minds mm-hmm. uh, to create digital minds. I guess there's no guarantee that future humans would desire this, but it does seem kind of unlikely to me that we wouldn't create any digital minds at all. And then it does seem to me unlikely that once these digital minds exist and they have such obvious advantages over physical minds that they wouldn't eventually become the predominant source of minds, even even if people actually don't want this necessarily because the competitive pressures will be favoring the digital minds over the, the physical ones. Yeah. It just seems a lot easier to have a computer that doesn't have these kind of problems or like, mm-hmm you know, I physically need to eat food of various forms and have all these complicated metabolic processes in order to sustain my brain. It's really not obvious that the things I'm doing are like the optimal. It's extremely unlikely, in fact, that like evolution settled on the optimal brain design. I mean, it's super hard to reason about like how exactly this would work. You can imagine simple things as like, if we imagine that we think, you know, more minds existing is is uh, desirable and this could be because the minds themselves want more minds i mean like like as in human reproduction currently people like having more people um it could be because you you have like a, a despot who wants to create minds to do labor or whatever whatever the reason is the driving the there being more minds it just seems vastly more efficient to to have the minds be digital than to be biological mm-hmm. yeah that's a good point i guess like insofar as minds do useful things like cognitive labor like inventing stuff or whatever knowledge work Mm. then again that's a reason to prefer it to be digital because it's going to be cheaper to run you might be able to run it faster i mean this is all sounding like horrific like just just in the future but it could be like you know i'm like you know damon living in the year 2070 and i can either like you know have my kind of boring retirement or i can upload myself and i guess i don't know what kind of resources like a digital mind would spend it on but maybe Maybe I could like make more copies of myself or like just experience way more because I can pay for all this compute. Yeah. And like compared to the physical cost of like raising the cow that I eat or whatever, like makes sense for me to to choose the digital mind route. And if everyone does this, then that will be only digital minds left. Yeah. I mean, I guess- and even if not everyone does that, the people who do will presumably, if they want to produce offspring, 
mm -hmm. will produce more digital minds. And so they'll by just be the dominant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the relevant question here is something like, really, really hard to think about this at all. Mm. Are there any like very like general reasons to expect digital minds to be like a pretty serious deal once they become possible? And maybe it feels like there are in fact some reasons and therefore we should maybe like take that possibility seriously. There is this further question of like whether that would be good. Yeah. And that so feels it's, like it's even harder hard. to think yeah. about. And like, I know it's really, really easy to imagine it being like pretty... I don't know, what's the word? Dystopian. I mean, Age of M, right? Yeah, so there's a great book by Ray Robin Hansen where he discusses at length. Um, so I think so. I mean, I think it's also possible to be very, like much better than the thing, like alternatives. Like something to think about. If you imagine like the, the Star Wars future, we're imagined like things limited by like the planets that exist and like the laws of gravity or whatever. There's no reason that the digital societies you have to create have to be subject to these, mm -hmm. these constraints. Like our universe has this pesky speed of light limit. You just can't travel faster than that. Mm -hmm. Like if you want a galactic wide civilization, for instance, just like that's not going to happen, at least not in anything that looks like a human civilization, because it would take 20,000 light years to travel from, from one inch to the other. We could build simulated universes where that wasn't the case. I mean, it's pretty unlikely to me that the optimal universe is one exactly like our own, except you can travel faster. But, you know, we could build universes with like completely alien, you know, planets that are nothing like ours currently and don't obey the same laws of physics. So it seems odd to me that even if we, like it would be best for us to be in the physical forms we are now. And mm -hmm. there is just a huge landscape of possible worlds to explore that we can simulate. Mm -hmm. and we wouldn't be able to explore if we were at physical minds. But Damon, if such simulated worlds outnumbered the worlds which are doing the simulating, or which are doing the simulations, who's to say we're not in such a world already? Well, I mean, I think we're probably in a simulation. But it's, <laughs> this is a tricky, it's a tricky thing to reason about. Good. I think that's an apt place to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, Damon Binder, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Damon Binder on economic history, fundamental physics, and digital minds. If you find this podcast valuable in some way, one of the most effective ways to help is just to write a review wherever you're listening to this. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are just at Hear This Idea. And I'll also mention that we still have a feedback form on our website. Uh, we read every submission and you'll receive a free book for filling it out. And you can find that just on our homepage, which is hearthisidea.com. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. And thank you very much for listening.